You're listening to the Endless Pursuit Podcast, where we talk about all things hunting and the great outdoors. Let's get into it. No, I prefer it's go time. Before we start tonight's episode, we want to inform our listeners of a prize giveaway for your chance to win one of five 12-month memberships to the Australian Hunters Club, courtesy of our guest tonight, Jump over to our website, endlesspursuit.com.au, click on the links to our socials and follow the instructions. Best of luck and now let's get into the show. Welcome back listeners and tonight's episode of the Endless Pursuit podcast is a good one. I'm excited. It is, uh, look, I think we, I've got to take a step back here before I introduce the individual who's our guest. (laughs) I like to do some research and read up on my guests. And look, there's a lot of weight on my shoulders because, and I am referring to Dodge, the pun is intended, because (laughs) he can read, but he doesn't, Doesn't as he's pointed out in many podcasts before. But I will say this, I did have a lot of trouble. I just, you know, it was concerning for me because I Googled the Australian Huntsman and the images that came up did freak me out a little, but I am glad to say that we have a gentleman here who does not have eight legs and he's definitely not as scary as some of the images I saw. So Chris Waters, the Australian Huntsman, welcome. (laughs) Thank you. I'm trying not to laugh while you're just rolling out the red carpet for me. This is is the trouble with having a, a brand name like the Huntsman. I didn't think about that at all while I was thinking of that name. That I did not think about spiders until, um, yeah, much later. And then I was like, oh, great. Good job, Chris. Yeah. <laughs> but congratulations on looking just as hairy tonight with that moustache. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's a very good point, George. <laughs> so, welcome. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. I've got so many questions. You know, it's been one that Likewise. I've been looking forward to. Um, with what you're doing in your space of hunting, which you have your critics and you have your supporters, like all of us, which is fantastic. And I really want to get straight into it and find out a bit about yourself, but then also what what made you start the Australian Hunting Club? Uh, it's basically, from my understanding, an online hunting club. So firstly, I guess, how long have you been hunting for? I've been hunting, um, I'm going to say, I've hunting in inverted commas, a uh, long time. Hunting as in like calling myself a hunter, probably seven, eight years um, where I actually feel comfortable saying you've been giving it a red hot crack. You've been trying to get out like every week. You've you've been placing yourself around people of influence and people who you can learn from. You're, you're trying to improve yourself. You're trying to take down game and, and honour them and do things seriously. So I'd probably say seven, eight years in that space, but having access to guns and shooting um, quite a while uh, and having the hunter kind of mindset probably <laughs> for good or for bad, maybe even longer than that. Where, where did it come from in your family? Have you, have you got family that hunts and shoots or is you first no. generation? Or? First generation. It came from uh, it came from spearfishing actually. So I, when I was uh, probably in my fif- uh, 15 or 16 years old, it was just a cool thing to go out with your mates and spearfish. And we all had Hawaiian slings and being in Victoria, we have all this gorgeous coastline up and down the Great Ocean Road and the peninsula. And so in summer especially, we would just hit hit the beach like every day if we couldn't just free dive, um, and we'd have these little spearfishing trips. We'd go up and down the coast and have the time of our lives. And you know, the it's 
kind of this attraction of of young boys towards sharp objects and dangerous situations and the unknown <laughs> that kind of yes. pulls us in. But then also the beaches, girls, and and all those and all that stuff. And uh, but probably mostly it was the camaraderie of of going out with your mates and similar to hunting. Like you don't, you're not sitting next to someone when you're spearfishing. You're you're separate. You go out in your different ways, and then you come together and you celebrate. And so that was probably the kernel. Um, of experience that then bled into hunting when I moved away, when I made the tree change and moved away from the coast and it was no longer feasible to to make that drive and risk terrible weather and bad visibility. It was, okay, I still need this in my life. I know this is good for me. I know this is healthy for me. So how can I express these um, these same values, these same experiences, uh, I say value on food, um, but in the tree change environment. Uh, and essentially that's when I decided to come get serious about hunting as opposed to just having guns and shooting. And have you experienced bad weather and poor visibility out in the hunting now? <laughs> yeah, but I love it. Do you want know the difference is? The, the difference is that hunting in terrible weather in, especially in Victoria, is a lot of, I find it a lot of fun. I love it. I love when it's pouring down cats and dogs. I love when you're slipping on rocks and, tripping over, you know, logs and stuff in the rain and and that's that's fun. Um, hunting, uh, spearfishing in terrible weather is just disheartening uh, because it's like zero chance. It's freezing cold and you'd travel all that way for nothing, whereas at least in hunting, if, if you know how to hunt in the different uh, weather systems and environments, then you can make it happen in any, in any way. There's no kind of bad hunting in my mind. Yeah, I, I say to people regularly, I still hunt in the rain. I still hunt in the bad weather. I still get up early and get out there while it's raining. It's still hunting. It, the animals have still got to live. They've still got to walk. They've got to get warm as soon as that cloud breaks. They've got to get up, get dry, get moving. You can use it to your advantage. Use the rain to get to where you need to be so 100%. that when the sun does come out, you're opposite that north-facing hillside. And those animals pop out for some warmth. So I did a uh, – not sure if you did your research on, on us – Chris, but I, <laughs> I'll I keep it a secret. Yeah. I'll hold some ammunition yeah, right. up my sleeve. Yeah, right. Um, I run a little education course, and one of the weekends we did it flogged down. Like I'm talking, we had 120 mil on Saturday, and more than that on the Sunday. And the property that we were doing the course on, like I dragged this. There was four fledgling hunters, we'll call them, who two of them had their gun license, had never really done anything with it, and two of them really interested on the Saturday and the same on the Sunday, different four people, through torrential rain to go and shoot one measly goat and then I made them drag it through a waist-deep creek to get out the other side. And to me, I was like, oh, this is pretty terrible. I'm soaked through. And they were like beaming ear to ear. This is amazing. This is so cool. And I just try and tell people like it's it's just all part of it. Just get out in the weather. Animals still move. You're still going to shoot them. I think as well, the, the longer you hunt, you kind of forget some of that magic um, as you get spoiled and as you get better, obviously, you get more effective as you hunt longer. Well, hopefully, you'd hope that the longer you hunt, the more effective you become at hunting. And we forget that for the brand new hunters, that there's something magical about that experience and there's something that puts that fire in their belly. Like I remember my first serious hunting trip was up in the high country and I actually went with the hunting guide and the it was a, a terrible guide in terms of this the service they provided was was terrible it was literally his hold on, hold on. Did, um, dodge did were you <laughs> no chris and i have never met chris and i have never did, met oh, okay just okay. just checking if it was the name guide, of mate. who it was 
It, I'm not going to say the name of who it was because I respect them. Um, and I don't want to, like you Are said before, we fought all on the boats. Website? Yeah. <laughs> okay. I'm not going <laughs> to, why am I going to give you knives to throw at me? Um, <laughs> no. So, so I, it was terrible in the sense that, um, I was just given a GPS basically with, with a, a, a pin marked on it that was about, I think it was about 20 or 30K away. And uh, it was this kind of ridge line that just followed. And he said, and I'm the brand new to like serious hunting. And he's like, jump off top of that ridge, follow this pin and you'll see deer and you'll be able to shoot one. And I'll see you at the end of the day at the end of that pin. That was the experience. And I did that for two days and it sucked. And I, I saw the first deer I saw was... It, on that first morning, on as I kind of crested the ridgeline, I saw a silhouette of a samba and a yearling, and they just bumped off immediately, and I was kind of too, like, in awe to even have a chance at it. But then for two days, I saw nothing, and I just walked, and it was excruciating, and I got lost. Even though I was on top of the ridge, I got lost and peeled off a number of times, crossed into different systems, had to work my way back, and it was terrible. Like, it, it really just absolutely destroyed me physically. But man, I had the best time when I came back and my wife was like, how was it? I was like, it was amazing. Like I just, I, I had that fever from that point forward. We've discussed it before a couple of different types of fun. The fun you're having right now, roller coaster fun or that fun where your ankles hurt, you've got blisters, you're soaked through, your back's hurting. And the next day you're like, man, let's do that again. Yeah. That was awesome. So. I mean, I spent some time up in Queensland recently and did some kind of private property hunting and it's not something that I'm super used to. I'm used to state forest and it was a very different type of hunting. And uh, one of the hunters I went with, who again, I'm not going to drop names. He'll, he'll be the first to admit this though. He's like a sit by the dam, watch for deer kind of hunter. And I had a ball and we had a great time, but like if it, if it's not hurting, if it doesn't cost you something, if it's not difficult to get an animal, then I, I'm not, I'm not particularly interested. It's not. It's not fun. It's not hunting. It's, it becomes shooting at that point. Um, and I. I want to be a hunter. I. I want to earn my keep. So getting back to the spearfishing, because you, uh, everything you were saying just sounded like my conversation in episode one, when we were recapping our journeys on where how we got into hunting and shooting, and mine was spearfishing or what I call the aquatic hunting, and. I was the same, so a decent amount from the, the, the ocean, so that was the thing. I want to know, was it only using the Hawaiian sling or did you just upgrade into guns? Obviously, that's more reef stuff. Did you ever go out and do deep water? No, no. It was all shore breaks and, and reef dives um, and I surfed as well, so it was kind of like when the surf was good, like you'd take both the surfboard and the spear gun or the Hawaiian sling and when the surf was good, you'd surf and because they're all reef breaks for surfing and then when the surfing was terrible, you just dove the reefs and spearfished. We started probably, I think we probably did a good season and a half with the Hawaiian slings because that was cool and we were all learning. And once we started getting um, fish consistently with the Hawaiian slings, then we're like, okay, we know we can do this now. Let's move on to the the, the gun. And we did and that was awesome. Uh, and then it's like, okay, now we're getting too many fish with a gun. And then it's like, let's go grab craze with our bare hands, <laughs> do stupid stuff like that. Uh, so, yeah, progressed. So, listening to the first episode, you'll know that I do not spear fish because I quite often look like a – Migaloo the white whale, but what is a Hawaiian sling other than some sort of cocktail you would have on an all-in package <laughs> over in Honolulu? Matt, do you want to explain or do you want me to explain it? Oh, you can. I feel, I feel if I explain it, I'll be nicer than <laughs> what well, Matt will be. Oh, a Hawaiian sling well, is a, look, is a for, 
Ford Dodge. <laughs> it's a big pointy stick with a rubber on the- it that you point and you send the sharp part towards the fish. It's like amazing. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's like a big, is uh, it fi- I think it's fiberglass. Is it fiberglass or is it like? Oh, it depends which one you get. Some are like aluminium. It depends on the type you get. They what I think they have eight prongs on the end. They can. Yeah, roughly eight. Yeah. It depends. Again, like yeah, I mean basically it's like a big rod, fiberglass or aluminium or something plastic. Um that has a bit of flex to it with at the end there's a barb that basically has a number of uh you know, steel prongs that point outwards. Um almost in like a crown formation. And at the bottom you have a big hoop, a big rubber hoop that comes back on itself. And what you do is you put your um, thumb uh, between that hoop and then you put it against the pole and you lift your your hand up the, to the base of the pole as high as you can and then you hold it and then essentially you've got like a spring-loaded uh, rod in your hand. And so you kind of train it onto the fish uh, and you kind of lead with it like you would with a shotgun and then you let go. Uh, but you're only getting like, I mean – Good spear fisherman with a Hawaiian sling can do amazing things, but as a rookie, you're wanting to get within like a meter, two meters, three meters, kind of of the animal you're trying to get. Otherwise, you just have Buckley's chance. And honestly, that's a lot of what spear fishing with a Hawaiian sling is. When you start, you're just basically flinging this thing and going and collecting it, flinging it, going and collecting it, um, getting used to the weight and the heft. And uh, and and again, it's similar to hunting. Like it's you just don't get anything for ages, and it's incredible fun. <laughs> until you do and then you're like oh i understand how this thing works now only spearfishing stories i was holidaying in fiji and we got taken out by the locals and i didn't realize that's what it was called but we had a fijian sling which is a bit of rio that was sharpened on the end split in four and then pushed out into a barb and we were they'd set up a net around a bommy or whatever you guys call it a chunk of coral underground and underwater. They'd set up a net around it and the girls were up. <laughs> it's a technical story. The ladies were up the top on their boats and they'd gone down the bottom, swum down and bashed a root against the bottom of the coral and the fish passed out and they floated to the top and the ladies would scoop them off the top. It was like a carver root or, or similar. And then we were left down there chasing the stragglers, the ones that survived with this Hawaiian sling, which I never knew that was called. So technically I've been spearfishing. If you'd like any pointers, please ask. <laughs> if not, let's continue. Oh, once, once we were out, um, in, it was uh, in an area called uh, Steps uh, in uh, Victoria near Torquay, and we were, we were spearfishing. I was going to say hunting. We were hunting, spearfishing, uh, aquatic hunting, right? And uh, there was about five of us, and I – Hadn't been with these guys before, just got invited on this crew and we went out and we were coming back into shore and it was quite shallow. It was probably only three, four meters. And this guy saw this wobby gong on the, do you know what a wobby gong is? <laughs> Looking at Dodge. Dodge might not. Do you know what a wobby gong is, Dodge? It's like a flat. I've been called a wobby gong before. <laughs> it's like a flat reef shark with the most gnarly teeth you can imagine. Like it's a bottom feeder, um, but they get Nothing eats them, um, so they get really big and old and they're kind of warty and they look like basically like seaweed, but they're huge. And uh, there was one kind of laying down on the ground and uh, as we were swimming back, the guy's like, oh, there's a wobby going here. Let's, let's all like do a dumb thing and crowd around it and we'll all shoot it at the same time with our, with our spear guns or Hawaiian slings. And um, <laughs> And clearly one of the guys wanted to be the first to shoot it and he was the one that was counting. And he had an aluminium uh, rod in uh, an aluminium uh, Hawaiian sling, and he's like, "Okay, on the count of three, one, two, and then he just and he just flies it off, and it hits the wobby gong, and the wobby gong just 
like they're one of the only sharks that can bite their own tail and they and they flip and they kind of do like an alligator death roll and it did that and it just bent his spear in half it just went like you see in like a road runner or something it was just incredible to see that the power in that thing uh was was pretty crazy and then obviously we, we pulled it out to the shore and cut the head off and floated that out and uh, of course there was a family like you know three or four meters away that we didn't see and the little shark head goes floating past them and and then we copped a lot of flack for that two questions following from that one I'll ask you both and then let you answer. But the first question was you mentioned you went out with people you hadn't met. And I think that's like it's an interesting thing and I really enjoyed doing it. But hunting is the same. You go out from a guide's point of view with people you haven't met all the time. One, it's dangerous and two, you need to, you know, you you need to be a really good people reader. So do you enjoy going out with people you haven't met? I know the answer, I think. But And secondly, you mentioned, ah, I forgot the second part. Answer the first part, and I'll think of the second part. So I'm um, I'm building a club around that that exact thing, uh, and so you mentioned before it's an online club. It, it's not an online club. It's a it's a national club with local pockets of expression around the country. Uh, and what we're doing, we're only young, so we only started in January of this year, but we're growing very quickly. Uh, and the challenge for me with the club is okay. We we have this online presence, which is great. And we can all talk and hang out and we can share things. And then there's all these kind of digital benefits as well as physical benefits and stuff. But I, it need, a club is only as good as the relationships that exist within it. And I'm not talking social relationships online. I'm talking physical, I know you, we're hanging out, we're having a drink, we're going hunting relationships. And so the question becomes then, how do you connect hunters all across the country into relationships uh, without having a clubhouse. And so I started this thing called Host to Hunt, which is, it sounds ludicrous, it sounds ridiculous, but it is the bee's knees. It is the secret source of of clubs. Um, and I, I don't even care if other clubs steal this idea and take it on board. Um, just don't read that statement out in a, in a lawsuit if I ever sue anyone. <laughs> but, but it's basically like if you're a member of the club, and you want to go out and do a hunt and you're planning it sufficiently in advance, then you can just list your hunt on like a private area of the club's website and anyone in the club can see that and express their interest in going. And what happens is magical and crazy and uh, counterintuitive is that these people meet in the dark and you've got a firearm, I've got a firearm, we don't know each other, we meet at like 5 o'clock in the morning and then the magic happens. You just instantly fall into mateship and relationships and hanging out and then you spend these days together and then all of a sudden now i've got a hunting mate who lives near me um, or someone who's traveled across state to, to ha- hunt with me and then we have this unspoken rule in the club that if you attend a hosted hunt then you have to host your own hunt and so there's this kind of domino effect of people who have never met each other meeting for the first time on a hunt and and hunting and i'm not I'm not suggesting that I'm naive enough to think that something won't go wrong at some point uh, and we're putting things in place to ensure, to, to mitigate that risk. But at the same time, I feel really passionate about breaking down the stereotypes of how hunters are seen and I sometimes feel like the stereotypes that exist are not just um, perpetuated by the general public. We actually have a role in spreading those ourselves and there's this whole kind of macho, don't share your information, you shouldn't hunt with people you don't know kind of scenario that that kind of gets thrown around and that's not to say that they're not wise words because they definitely are you need to be very careful who you hunt with and you need to have very clear guidelines of of how people are going to act during a hunt 
um, what people are doing with their firearms, you know, when a bolt's being closed, when a safety's being taken on, taken off, when a, when a round's loaded into a magazine, where do you point it? When are we going to do this? When like, all that conversation needs to happen. But it's not as scary as people think. And if we're truly to take this lifestyle and have these positive experiences and relationships, and especially mentor new hunters, then we 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 need to be bold and courageous and not be afraid to do that kind of thing. So I'm a I'm a huge fan. I do it all the time. I hunt with strangers all the time, and I love it. I've never had a bad experience yet. So jumping back to the spearfishing, <laughs> <laughs> he's like, "Where's my it's spearfishing buddy?" I love. Yeah. You're the first person that's come on and talked, filled his void for spearfishing. Oh, so he's so excited. Goodness. What a waste of a conversation, a hunting podcast, and we're going to talk about spearfishing. They'll be like, Chris, what, well, what I a mean, dumb. No one's going to listen to this podcast. Are we just a hunting <laughs> podcast? I, I feel we're so much more than just a hunting You're podcast. You're a hunting so. and spearfishing podcast. Uh, Change the category. I think we're just outdoors. I mean, even in our intro, it says hunting in the great outdoors. So, I mean, the spearfishing <laughs> is in the great outdoors. but. So, what's the uh, biggest fish you've got, mate? Oh, I'm not. I'm not like a. I'm not a big fish spear fisherman. Like, I'm not. A, first of all, I'm not a fisherman. I don't consider myself a fisherman. I don't go out and fish. And and when I spear fish, I'm like, I'm I'm such a novice. Like, I'm terrible at it. So, I'm I'm doing like silly little parrot fish. Like, you know, like the just like I'm not. I'm not like I'm not going to come here and be like, oh, there's crazy mahi mahi or like tuna or not. I mean, although I did go spear fishing once in Bali. Um, this is here. Here's a crazy story for you. This will this doesn't tickle your your spearfishing pickle. Then nothing else will. Um, I went out spearfishing in Bali. We went to Bali, and uh, when my wife and I go to Bali, we usually uh, try to stay in like fishing villages, like remote areas, not in like Kuda or like the really like my wife speaks Indonesian. She's like a major in it. She did um, spent time in Indonesia studying. So she she's like the local when we go over there, and she just speaks, and, and it's awesome. So we eat all street food. Um, and we connect with locals, go to weddings and stuff. It's just amazing. And we're in this little fishing village and I wanted to do some spear fishing. And so we found this guide and I'm thinking like, hey, we'll go out with this guy. He's probably takes a lot of Westerners out and we'll do this cruisy little spear fish around the coast and we'll be diving like maximum like 10 meters. It's going to be great. We're going to get see all these beautiful fish and it'll be awesome. That was not the experience. This guy takes out like Russian Olympic swim teams and like spearfishing champ. Like he was hardcore and we- So you fit in well. <laughs> and so I'm like looking for this chill experience and he's he's awesome. Like he's amazing man, but he was there to like- to, to push the envelope. And as we're driving to the first location, he's, he starts to open up and he says, you wouldn't believe it, Chris. He's like, two weeks ago, um, I lost my brother while we were spearfishing. And he's like, my brother is like even more competitive than I am, chases the biggest fish. They're like doing the whole, you know, shoot a massive fish, have the boys on the rod that, you know, the, the rod goes down, you let go of it. It kind of pulls the fish back up again. It's like hardcore, hardcore stuff. Um, and he's diving like, 10, 20, 30, 40. He's just going as far as a human being can go. And he said, uh, I've always just appreciated the ocean and, and wanting to connect, but that's, that was my brother's angle. And we were out spearfishing like two or three weeks ago, whatever it was, and he saw this fish and he shot it and he just would not let it go. And he said, I just watched my brother fade into the darkness and it was gone and they, and they never found him. And I'm in the car thinking, oh, my gosh, like – like, is it like, should we be going out? Like, are you okay? Like what? This is, this is intense. And he's like, you know what? This is my, my brother lived for this. I live for this. He's like, I cannot, 
I cannot do this. And if I love my brother and respect my brother, I want to honor my brother, then I have to do this. And so we went out and we had the, we had the time of our lives. And I'm like, we, the first dive, I'm looking at like one, one and a half meter fish and I'm like training my speed gun and he like pushes the speed gun away and he's like, no, like, like, no, no, no. You're like waggling the finger at me underwater. Like not those ones. They're tiny. And I'm like, what the hell? This guy's insane. And I just, I literally just would watch him just drop and just disappear. And then he'd come back up again. Like, it felt like 10 minutes later, like he was just insane. But the, the amount of fish we got um, was in- incredible and the size of the fish. And the cool thing about him was he was like the Bali spearfishing god and he would take all of the orders from all of the local villages about what fish they wanted and of, and they do a lot of ceremonial stuff with certain fish. And so he had a list of like this this type of fish for that and this type of, and then he'd go and intentionally shoot those fish and then he'd bring it back to those villages and give it to them and then they would feast together and it also helped as well whenever he get pulled over by the cops and all the cops knew him and then he just popped the trunk and he'd be like all right he's a fish mate and the cops would be like all right have a good one <laughs> he just drive off like when he's when he's clearly doing something like speeding or something like that it was it was a crazy experience it was awesome so when you're talking about going out uh that takes me back to i guess i needed dreaming with matt like i mean dodge you've got your sound bottle i haven't even got one but anyway so when I tend to my one of my favourite trips when I was spearfishing is down south coast of New South Wales, Ulladulla. There's a place called Burrow Rocks, and off it's probably about two three k's offshore. Got to get there by boat. Obviously, you're not going to swim out that far. So we dived off that, and I have the big spearfishing gun, the rail gun, and I have about a 20, 30 meter float line. The boy, so you can shoot it, and then you let the gun go, and then you grab the boy, and you use your weight, swim against the fish, and that's how yeah. you stop those bigger fish. Uh, similar thing, I had a, my dad's mate shot a uh, bluefin tuna that was coming past him, didn't shoot it in the right spot uh, or an instant kill, and it started dragging him out to sea. He ended up getting taken out about three to four Ks. Wow. And was it before he let the gun go and went, oh, I'm, you know, it's getting to the point where if I don't, I'm in a bit, some serious trouble here. But I still remember, and every time I do it, it's still – I get really eerie because you jump off the boat and you start to swim over towards the rocks, but you're just looking down. It's just black. Yeah. And you're swimming for, you know, sometimes a minute. Yeah. And just pitch black looking down going, there could be absolutely anything under there. Yeah. You're doing something that you're shooting a fish and sending vibrations out towards those sharks and chum. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's crazy. And for me, I've always made sure that the fish are on the, the buoy line a good 20, 30 metres away from me. And the reason being is one time I was spearfishing and I was going along holding the gun out in front because I was sort of trailing a fish underwater and all of a sudden the gun just got reefed out of the – like pulled my shoulder back out because the shark had gone and grabbed one of the fish I'd already shot and started to swim away with it obviously. So I had to go and knock the shark off a bit, but then that was all good. But, yeah, it's a – Crazy one. I, I love spearfishing and I guess that's – it's similar to hunting but obviously a water version. But I think there's more nuance in hunting, like more being able to follow sign and things like that. And as you touched on before, the fact that we can do it in really poor conditions, I love hunting in the snow. It's one of my favourite things. How often have you done that? Spearfishing. No, hunting in the snow. Uh, I've only gone twice. Have you done it, Chris? No, it's on the wish list actually. And I hunt like the area they hunt, especially in the high country, gets snow every, every year. And I just never managed to get out there. Um, but I, I want to, especially there's an area called Borbor that I want to get out where there's like 
wild brumbies and stuff and a whole bunch of cool stuff out there to see uh, and they get some pretty heavy snow and so it's something that um that i'm really keen and i don't actually have a lot of experience like i I basically don't know anything about like tracking in the snow apart from the obvious like there's a dirty big print um (laughs) uh but yeah no not at all you mentioned there matt going swimming through the darkness and the stuff underneath it weird complex which you don't know about me yet, is I'm scared of the dark in community. I'll drag the bins out the front and run back to the house, but I'll happily walk <laughs> through the forest in the pitch black. <laughs> yeah. With, with, like, with nothing. I'll, I literally would catch horses in the middle of nowhere in Canada in oh, my no, undies in the pitch. No, what, don't. Oh. What are you? Go on. I was going to say, with nothing. Like, it, you're clothed, aren't you? Are you went no, back no. to the bright orange G-string again? Mate, that yeah. was three episodes ago. That's how Come he catches on. them. He Move pulls on. off the G-string, swings it around like a lasso and... <laughs> Onto the bro- under the bro- yeah. like a slingshot, <laughs> pulls it in, yeah. ropes it in. That's my Hawaii, Hawaiian sling. So, my bringing it back to hunting. Have either of you had? I know, Matt, you've been down south talking about sharks and things in the dark water. Have either of you been in a situation where you felt like something was following you with wild dogs out in the high country or anything like that, Matt? I'm pretty boring here, and no, I've got nothing like that. I've, to be honest, I have never ever run into another hunter when I've been out, and I hunt state forests, and never ran into another hunter. Never ran into a DPI officer. One time, I ran into a bloke walking his dog, uh, and that was just—I was just down a random trail, just having a look. I didn't even have the rifle with me because I had it locked up, and. I could see the car, just went for a wander just to check out a bit of a, like a, a creek just because I was, yeah, something to do and it was in the middle of the day and I sort of was driving between spots and I ran into a guy with a dog. That was it. That's the only experience that I've had with a human out in the state forest other than obviously the hunt that Dodge, you and I and Kyle went on, but yeah. Yeah, I've um I've bumped a few hunters uh, in the state forest before. Um, one particular um hunts i was more remote than i than i or i thought sorry i thought i was more remote than what i was basically um it was kind of like a backpack hunt and i was basically stalking what turned out to be another hunter for about an hour um and he had a dog with him and uh he started moving towards me at one point and i sat down behind a uh behind a, like a log like a full on log and i had like i didn't have the rifle trained on him at all um but like i was in a position where i was ready to take advantage of what like to assess what came out of that bush and his dog came out luckily first and scared the living bejesus out of me like i'm oh, and and like, because then I knew that there was a hunter around. It was a matter of like, okay, I've got a few seconds now to think about how I'm going to engage this dude. Um, and it was just a quick like, hey, hey, mate, how you, how you going? And then we had a chat, and basically talked about where he'd been, where I'd been, and all that kind of thing. And it was fine. But I've had I've had that happen a few times. Probably the I, I actually find it more scary uh, for whatever reason. I was coming back in the dark one day uh, to, up to the camping site and I had to walk up this four-wheel drive track and I was coming off a game trail and I could see in the distance a uh, camp that was set up that had been set up like I'd gone off the tr- – I'd hunted off the track through the park and then um, it, they'd obviously set up in between then and I was coming back and their camp was there. And so I'm like I have to – I literally have to go – like I don't want to creep around their camp. I know guys that will do that, that will like just avoid people. Or I'm like I, that's – to me that's that's dumb. That's dangerous. That's how you get shot. And so I was like, no, I'll, I'll just walk through. But 
there's something awkward about walking towards and like, again, this is what I was talking about before. This is that preconception thing, right? Uh, that we have towards other hunters that is unhealthy and, and dangerous to us and how we're perceived. But you think, like, I don't know these guys. Like, they've got guns. I've got a gun. I'm walking out of the bush. I'm sounding like a deer. Like, I'm not sounding like a roo. Um, and so, yeah, it's just about like making yourself known. And so there's something scary about that. I, I mean, in Australia, we honestly don't have any animal that is in terms of hunting, as a, is a threat to you. I mean, snakes and, and spiders are the worst thing. I, I mean, if you're swimming in the rivers up north and crocodiles and stuff, but, I mean, and boars, if you really want to tick off a boar, like, but a boar's not going to hunt you. I mean, really, it's wild dogs and dingoes, and my experience with those in the wild have, have for the most part, been 99% of the time is that you'll hear them, hear them howling through the valleys and, and they're a beautiful thing to see, a sight to behold, to watch a pack of dogs hunt down like a yearling or or an injured roo or wallaby or something it's just incredible to see uh, but yeah you'll, you'll hear them and then you might see them but they generally just nick off and they're not interested in you at all um, they might i've had i've been stalked by at least on two different occasions stalked by some wild dogs or one the second one was like a wild dog dingo hybrid um the first time it it kind of got to the point of like the last bush before I before a little clearing before where I was in the edge of and it was smart it got to the bush and and then it just stopped and clearly knew something was up and then it bailed so I didn't even see it um, but the other one was a was a different story you're mentioning walking on a track and having to walk through someone's camp I've had that happen twice on the other side of it so we had the camp and this was prior to let's say, becoming a hunter. You, you mentioned prior to that you are a shooter. I was the same. And I was actually on a horse riding trip with my parents in the Snowy Mountains. And there was, I think, 30-odd people on this trip. And we went for a boys' ride one day, and it was an overnighter. And you've done some Snowy Mountain stuff, haven't you, mate? You've been to a couple other huts down there. You mentioned Blue Lake or something One was one. but uh, That was Blue Waterholes. But- Blue Waterholes, yeah, been to that one. This one, Seaman's Hut. Now- <laughs> plays out so it was an all boys trip to seaman's hut we got there and it rained 98 percent of the way as soon as we left it started raining we got there and we tied the horses up outside we were soaked there Isn't was there a song about the- raining men raining men yeah, in seaman's just- hut yeah <laughs> you can sing it later actually chris <laughs> let's all sing it together <laughs> matt has quite the singing voice uh, a little bit falsetto it wasn't quite prepared for that he's quite good at it but the, there was eight of us in this cabin and someone started the fire. That was the first job. Tied the horses up, bring the saddles in. We ended up all stripped down into our undies and all the clothes like hanging on the mantelpiece, stay in the night because we, we weren't prepared for the rain. We didn't have rain gear. We'd been in there about two hours. So we're still in undies, fire's going, coffee's going around. If someone's starting dinner, two hikers come in. They walk straight through the front door of Seaman's <laughs> hut and there's eight guys in there in undies. And... <laughs> They could have, they, you know, were planning on staying the night and the track to the next cabin is not an easy one. And at five o'clock in the afternoon, just before dark, they said, righto, we're going to move on to the next cabin tonight <laughs> and not stay here. We'll see you there, guys. We'll, we'll be 10 minutes behind. <laughs> no, 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 it's all right. You stay <laughs> here. You stay here. No. <laughs> Please stay here. Yeah. They did not They did not stay for dinner. But, yeah, tracking through someone's camp is a, a tricky situation and I agree you made yourself known. It's much easier to make yourself known than to pretend to hide yeah. 
and then feel like, you know, if they bust you at the last second, that scares both of you. And it's, uh, I think it's the courteous thing to do to admit that, hey, we've both busted each other's stalk. Mm. Let's just have a conversation because there's not going to be any deer here because we've both scared them away and then split up. Yeah, coordinate. That's the best thing you can do. Like I came from the north, you came from the south. Okay, let's hunt east and west. You take one, I'll take the other. Like Exactly. It's pretty simple stuff. And yeah. I mean, I've, I I know stories, um, this never happened to me personally, but it happened to my brother, where some of his best hunting friends, he's he's met in the bush. Uh, this guy called Kiwi, he talked, he, he's like so many stories about Kiwi, but Kiwi is this big guy. He's a Kiwi, as you can imagine. Um, just came out of the bush one day, at middle of the high country, walked out of the bush, walked into camp, and then it's like instant best friend. Like he's just one of those guys. And now they've been hunting for years, like tens of years, and and that's how they met. Like he just literally walked into the camp and he's like, hey, I'm Kiwi. And like, hey. And then it's like, let's – I guess you're camping here, right? <laughs> this is what's happening. <laughs> Do you hunt with your brother often? I do. I as uh, I I do, and I it's my favorite kind of hunting. Like with the YouTube channel, and with uh, Hunting Trips Australia, and having all these relationships with guys, and then the Hunters Club. My hunts are div- diversifying really, really quickly, and I'm having all these amazing opportunities, which is fantastic. But my f- my favorite hunt, like my happy place, is hunting with my brother. Is is uh, the kind of hunting that we do, and I I actually haven't done it for probably three or four months now, hunting with him, and so I'm just itching to get out back with him again and uh just enjoy enjoy that relationship enjoy everything that goes with it it's it's my favorite type to be honest so you mentioned uh the youtube channel what made you want to make life harder as a hunter in the bush (laughs) and start filming it and you know I, i get the whole premise of trying to help other people out and but there's so much more to it when you're in the bush and then having someone trail you with it looking through a camera. I personally have never had someone follow me, but I imagine there's quite a bit of noise, especially if they're looking f- through the camera. They're not going to be completely aware of their surroundings. I know there was an issue with um, in a previous episode dodging one of his mates when he was filming it and the communication between two people. Yeah, so what made you want to do it? So uh, I'll, I'll give a bit of context first. Uh, to answer your previous questions and I'll answer your first question. So I primarily, like up until literally last week, all of my hunts that I filmed, I filmed by myself. So which is in some ways it's like easier in that you don't need to worry about what anyone else is doing. You can take it at your own pace and you kind of gain some props and that way it becomes a bit easier. But at the same time, you're having to film it yourself. So you're splitting your attention and you're thinking, I mean, you're thinking about the narrative. You're thinking about what do I need to stitch this together. Um, you're, you're, talk, you're taking. You're stopping when you otherwise wouldn't stop when you're hunting, and you're talking to the camera and you're explaining things, which again can be helpful um, as a hunter, but can also just pull you out of the hunt. And so it's it's extremely difficult. I don't think people realize this until you actually try it. It's extremely difficult to execute on a hunt and film it. And if you do execute on a hunt and you film it, more than likely. The things like the shot on the animal, you probably won't capture that or you'll shoot the animal and then you'll have to recreate that that scene because you because you didn't capture it unless you just want, and that's I'm talking about if you're wanting to do it well. Like there's, a, there's plenty of people who are out there and they just chuck a GoPro and they just run around with GoPro and, and, and whatever. That's fine if you, if you want to do that. But um, really good hunting content that captures – the feel of what what a hunt's like that's really difficult and so 
it's uh, up, let's just say up until recently, I've done that all myself, but I just went out to South Australia last weekend and I had a member of the club come out with, I, I did one of those hosted hunts where I said, Hey, I'm going up to South Australia. I'm hunting, um, Cheadle and Fallow. Um, does anyone want to? The Water Valley, wasn't it? Yeah. In Water Valley. Yeah. Uh, and I said, does anyone want to come? And, um, a whole bunch of people put up their hand. I'm like, well, I've only got one spot. And a guy called Ben came with me and he's like, Hey, if you want, I can film. And I was like, seriously? Oh, yes, please. And so, if you ever, if you watch the video, which we'll, we'll release in about a week or so, it's it's awesome because <laughs> I'm not filming. Um, but anyway, uh, why why do I do it? A few reasons. Uh, I I'm I'm a creative person. Like I have a creative brain, and I and I get the creative itch. And if I don't scratch it, um, I get irritated. Uh, so I, I I I need to be making things all the time. Um, otherwise, I get frustrated. Otherwise, I feel like I lack purpose. I lose direction. So, so the hunting um, channel, yes, it's a way to teach people. Yes, it's a way to educate. I'm obviously passionate about the way that hunters are seen in the community and wanting to increase our standing in the community and make people understand why we do what we do and, and the wholesome values that sit behind it. Uh, but I'm, it's also a creative outlet. So I, I love sometimes my wife will say, and like I don't film all my hunts. I don't, actually don't film most of them. But when I'm when I'm not filming my hunt, I kind of feel like I'm I'm missing out sometimes. I'm like, oh man, because I just love it. I just I just love capturing it, and I love especially I love pulling together something magical. And I'm not saying that everything I've done is magical or even any of it. But I love tr- let's say this: I love trying to pull together something magical that you can then send to a, especially a new hunter and be like, this is what it feels like. Like this is this is that thing that we know and we love. And, and when I watch, like I watch a lot of hunting videos from other people, guys like Zebra or Hill Dog or uh, Tony Gillaham or, or um, the guys behind Bolt Action, I, I watch heaps. And when you watch those videos, you feel like you're hunting with them, the good ones, and then you, you get the itch and you're like, I just want to get out hunting like I, tonight, like if I can. And, and so I, I want to create that feeling for other people too because uh, there's something, yeah, incredible about about that to be able to convey that you mentioned earlier on that when you're referencing your friend or your hunting partner that prefers to sit and wait for deer by dam or whatnot and that if you're not getting something out of it as a hard burn and then you mentioned water valley (laughs) i don't know if you want to explain have you yeah i can can we discuss the water valley hunt i know the video hasn't come out yet yeah so had you done I'm going to, um, so I'll backstep. Water Valley is a high fence property, although the high fences are that far away. The deer are just ecologically normally allowed to grow in there and Correct. doing their own thing. It's so 500,000 acres. the most realistic acres. high fence situation you're ever going to get. Correct. It's huge. It's massive. And the deer are just doing their own thing. It does have a fence around it, mostly to keep other people out. But do you? how, how did you unpack that for yourself? How do you feel about that? How does that fit on your scale of yeah, hunting? Sure. That's a really good question. And and this is kind of what I meant before about how my hunting experiences have, have more recently in the last 12 months been diversifying. And because I, I run this website, Hunting Trips Australia, I created this website that it lists like 99% of all the guides on the country um, are listed on this website. And you go to it and you can it's like the, the Airbnb for hunting where you can filter through all the guides and find the hunt you want and and go on it. And I don't charge the guides to go on there and I don't charge people to use it. And so it's really popular. Like it gets like fifty to eighty thousand views a month. Like it's and it's it's doing wonders for well, I mean, I think this, some people might not, but wonders for the guide the guides themselves and, and their their um 
livelihoods. Uh, so I'm getting all these relationships and building all these relationships and these guys are wanting to give back. And so that, so I'm having these opportunities to do these hunts. A, a safari hunt is so weird and foreign to me and it's not the kind of hunting that I normally do. But in any hunting situation that's different, for me it's really important that I find the beauty in it because I, I think that there's some, there must be something in it. People do this. People enjoy it. I want to know why. Um, and I want to know why for the right reasons, not for the wrong ones. And so I, whenever I do a new experience, I, I just try and mine it and I just pick the brains of the people who are running it or who, are, who have done it uh, and, and find out why. And in this particular hunt, it was a cull hunt and that's not something that I've done before. Like when I'm usually hunting, it's for a meat animal and if, if there's a trophy to be had, I'll, I'll take a trophy, but I'm there to hunt meat. Whereas this, is, this was a very specific kind of hunt where we're after – um, we were looking for a cheetah cull, um, but the it was freezing the morning of the hunt. It was like a zero overnight and then three degrees in the morning when we were hunting. And the cheetah are obviously native to the northern parts of Australia and they're from India. And so their hides are really thin compared to something like a sambra or a red, um, like the, the reds being European and the sambra just being kind of, they're just big chunky. They just have mass on them. So because it was so cold, all the cheetah were bedded down, and uh, and we were we were then focusing on a, on a fellow buck cull, and we're looking for things like um, missing tray tines or like split palms or anything that's basically going to indicate that the animal is genetically inferior, uh, and it's worth removing them from the population to ensure the the purity of of the herd moving forward or the quality is maybe a better word to look at it not purity the quality of the animal, and uh, so. It wasn't about finding deer. We saw hundreds of deer. And again, as a, like a content creator, that's not normal for me. <laughs> I'm not used to getting so much game on the camera and so much variety. And you see things like, you see like Chittle running with Fellow, like together in the same herd. And then there's a Samba there as well, like a, like a I don't know, like a hind with her yearling. It's like weird. It's just, it was just a weird, magical place. So the issue is not seeing deer. Um, the issue is not getting close to deer. The issue is seeing the right deer. Um, and that's what most people go to Water Valley for is for a trophy hunt and to get an exceptional quality animal that's like a once-in-a-lifetime kind of trophy that if you got that in the wild, people would be worshipping you and, and building a temple on a, on a mountainside for you kind of thing. And so we were off the opposite. We were after like the big dirty rat, <laughs> which is still beautiful to me. Um, but, yeah, so we we, we just – you hoon around in a in a jeep or a car or something, and you do a lot of glassing, and then you spot the animal, and it's like, okay, now, now we know which animal we're after, and then you then there's a stalk involved. It's called like like uh, spot and, and stalk, and so then you hop out of the car, and that's when the hunting kind of really starts, where you need to figure out how you position yourself, what's the wind doing, where can we get cover, uh, and then you uh, get to the point where you execute on it, and it's um, different. It's very different, and it was it took time for me to unpack that hunt i'm still unpacking it i'm only back a week from it but i begin having the benefit of going through all the content and reliving it and trying to find what out with the lesson tease the lesson out of it but um i feel like i have i feel like i've teased i've learned a lot from that hunt about hunting that i didn't know previously definitely a lot of different challenges in an estate style hunt that a lot of people just don't experience in the wild and yeah, I definitely implore most people to try it at least once. Like you said, it's not for everyone. And, you know, I appreciate you being honest about that and challenging yourself to to find those little nuggets and little gems in there 
and even just a picking. Was that that was obviously a guided hunt? Yeah, it was a guided hunt with um, Magnum Hunts and Taxidermy. Paul Convery, uh, who is like in terms of like you want to talk about a hunting legend in, in Australia, like he is a hunting legend. Sixty nine, and he, he basically started the, the um, ADA in South Australia. He's the re- he's like the reason why there's wild deer in South Australia, which some people <laughs> are not happy about that, but hunters are happy about that. Yeah, so to and he's a man. Like this will cut this will come out in the video and Paul won't mind me saying this, but in terms of standards and um constructive aggressively constructive feedback, man that guy just rips you. He the amount of times <laughs> he called me a, a greenhorn or I'd say something about I'd say something about some animal and he's like, well, clearly you haven't seen many deer. And the, there's the part of me, the hubris in me, wants to jump out and say, you know what? No, I've, like, I've seen plenty of deer. Thank you very much. But, again, I'm there to learn. I'm there to sit under a person and learn from their wisdom. And so I, you suck up the hubris and you think about it. And then, and then after, like, spending time with him, you're like, you know what? This guy's been hunting deer for 69 years. He's he's done the, the South Pacific um, Grand Slam twice. He's, he's one animal off the, the Africa Big Five. He sees hundreds of deer every day. In context to him, yes, I haven't seen many deer. In context to him, I'm not sure if I can call myself a hunter. Like, And I feel like if you take that position, then you open the door to learning and growth and opportunity. If you just want to defend your position and stay comfortable, go do that. But you won't learn. And you won't you won't grow and um in fact i believe you go backwards i don't believe you stagnate i just believe you you recede so uh, i i'm not interested in that i i'm happy to throw myself in front of a train if it means that i will come back stronger stronger i'm a big fan of the sink or swim mentality that the you, you get thrown in the deep end and that's the best learning curve to come out the other end and it's something that i've done with my hunting journey is get out there make mistakes, learn from them. And, you know, I've mentioned this on another podcast, but I believe the FAIL is a good sort of acronym for, you know, first attempt in learning. Now, nothing's a FAIL unless you're doing something wrong over and over and over and over again. Then then you've got issues. But, uh, yeah, I'm big for getting out there and really throw yourself, immerse yourself in it and see how you go. Mate, what came first? Did you start the the website? Did you start recording yourself? Did you start the hunting club? Which, how did you start, and how did it progress? Sure, that's a great great question. So, I started the YouTube channel first, um, but very quickly, it wasn't it wasn't soon after that that I started developing Hunting Trips Australia uh, because I I saw a need and. Um, and was messing around with some some new technology and tools and stuff. And, and again, I'm creative, so I'm always making things. Not everything that I make floats; lots of it sinks. Um, so I was just, I threw it together. But uh, like, I I want to move. I want to move into this lifestyle full time. And for me to do that, there's a whole bunch of gears that need to turn to enable that. And one of the things was I was thinking as I was starting the, the YouTube channel. It's like, well, I can maybe I'll get into guiding. Because I love hunting, I love people, I love education. Maybe guiding is a cool thing. And maybe I can do what a lot of, you know, the, the YouTube channels out there do and just like document their 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 business basically. Like the, like a lot of the pest control guys, like Edge of Outback and, and like, you know, dogs, hogs and squads and 
or I can never pronounce that, dogs, hogs, and quads do is like they're professional best controllers and they just film their jobs and they create great content. Uh, so I thought maybe I could do that. And then I was also, as I was thinking and messing around with these new tools and stuff, and I've told the story before, if you were interested in learning the kind of the roots of, of how Hunting Trips Australia started, go check out. Uh, uh, am I allowed to talk about other podcasts on this podcast? Yeah, mate. It's we. Our opinion is that we're all pushing for the same objective. Yeah, cool. You know, we all have different, I guess, methods and pathways, but at the end of the day, I think everyone is about promoting our lifestyle as hunters, and I think that's really important. Yeah, awesome. Well, if you want to learn the genesis of that, go check out um, Jason Selm's AHP episode. I think it, I can't remember what it is. I think it's 250. Um, I talk about that. But uh, the, the logic behind that platform was, okay, if um, I can go out and guide and help like maybe 50 people a year or I can create a platform that helps thousands of people a year. And w- what skills do I have now? that I can use immediately to have an effect immediately. And it's like my, I'm, as my background is I'm, I'm a freelance website developer. So I'm like, use those skills rather than guide because you'd have to learn to be a guide. So go, go build this. So I built that. And um, because I want to do this full time, obviously that needs to, I need to find a way to monetize what I'm doing, um, bring in an income so I can put food on the table, feed my kids' bellies, clothe them, all that kind of thing. It's important to me. Uh, and I'm not ashamed about that, and I'm not ashamed to talk about money and hunting. Uh, I know some people get nervous about it, especially with things like YouTube and stuff. When the people assume that you're making a million bucks and you might have enough to buy a stamp for a letter at the end of a month, but that's the reality. But anyway, so I need to find out a way to um, monetize it. And again, I'm thinking, what skills do I have right now? Where is the need? What can I do? And so it was about a year into a little bit less than a year into the YouTube channel. And the Hunting Trips Australia website that I and I tried a whole bunch of of ways to monetize Hunting Trips Australia that just didn't work that just flopped and I thought well what can I do and I thought well maybe I could start a hunting club because I looked out there and I see all of these hunting clubs out there um, and they all have different flavors and they all bring something different to the table but no one I'm not going to say that because that's not true a lot of the big ones that are doing it on mass who have who have the most profound effect. Uh, on most hunters are, are lacking in some regard. And there's a whole bunch of reasons why, and I'm not wanting to have a jib at them because I think that we need clubs of all shapes and sizes and anyone who's involved in a club is doing something amazing and commendable. And um, I'm not here to, sh- to shoot down anyone. In fact, I'm here to praise them and congratulate them. And I think we need more people in clubs volunteering, working, pushing them. Um, and so please don't hear me say that, anyone. Um, but I saw a need and I, and I saw um, a lot of infighting and politicizing and ladder climbing and boys clubs and a few people in a large club getting all the benefits and stuff like that. And so I thought, well, this is something that I can do. This is something I'm in a unique position where I've got um, this YouTube channel that has this great community and audience who resonates with the values that I have, the values that I've gotten from great um, men and women in the hunting scene that I've intentionally put myself in front of and in their lives. And they're resonating with those values. And then I have this amazing website that has all of this traffic of hunters who are trying to get out there and learn and grow and challenge themselves. And and I have these unique relationships with all these hunting guides in the country 
who are benefiting from all of this, this combination, this kind of perfect storm of things happening. And so I thought, well, I can, I can create a club that gives awesome benefits because of all of these different things. Like I can, I can run a club that gives away two professionally guided hunts a month. Uh, because of these relationships. I can run a club that gets discounts on guided hunts. I can um, run a club that uh, that encourages like relationships and gets people out there. I can run a club that does events. I can, because I'm doing the YouTube thing and I'm connecting with brands, I can leverage those relationships to give people discounts on hunting gear. And all of these different things kind of just naturally, well, I say naturally, there was a lot of forethought and thinking and planning and testing that went into weaving these objects together but when they like anything good uh, when you start weaving it together if it feels natural and it happens naturally and sometimes quickly or you see the benefits immediately then it then it's easy um and that's been what's been well that's essentially what's been happening since january is that the club has just been exploding and we get we're getting new members all the time and it's growing into a great community so again like the, my challenge is how do we ensure that this club has authentic representation um, and that it is connecting people? Because I don't want it to be a digital club. And it, if I wanted to, I could just take the hands off the rails and it would continue to grow and it would be just that. It would be a huge, big digital club and people could come in and get their genuine reason and get their insurance and maybe win a guide or hunt once or twice or maybe get some discounts or maybe win some free gear. And a lot of people would be happy about that. But that's not enough for me. I'm not content with that. That's not what I'm trying to do. And so I'm pushing as hard as I can to connect people. And it's hard. It is so hard. And interrupt me at any point if you want to because I'll just ramble. But it is so hard to connect people especially in this day and age where we see the breakdown of community. Yeah, look, so I've got a couple of things here. I think it's the nature of our industry. I call it an industry, but our lifestyle. Our worldview. Give away hunting spots or no, like this. It's it's like a secret society. And when I talk to different people, they're very guarded. And you know, I know people that won't even say like a region of where they yeah. hunt. Like they're so, so like – want to keep it close to their chest like there's no more deer out there and the, <laughs> you're going to shoot the last one. And I understand because it is tough to, to get access and also hunting is quite difficult, but if you're not growing the community, if you're not supporting others, it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to dwindle. Correct. And that, we have to. That's, that's a concern. We need to be proactive. We're already seeing oh, that. 100%. With, with new hunters, they're looking – Unfortunately, and I put my hand up as being someone who is is on this in this 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 um, field of view, is that they're looking to YouTube to learn. They're looking, they're typing in things into Google, and they're taking the answers from Google, and that's how they're learning. And that is dangerous uh, because if we know anything about the internet, if we know anything about content, is that it's this kind of insular bubble in that the internet, in generally speaking, will feed you what kind of captures your attention the most, what what holds your attention. That's what the internet will feed you. And so if you type in questions, the answers more than likely, especially if it's like political questions, you'll get fed answers based on your political persuasions. That's the way that it works. That's the way that content and monetization and attention works. And so when new hunters are jumping in, 
They're not thinking about joining clubs. They're not thinking about meeting new hunters, other people. They're not thinking about mentors. They're like, oh, I like that YouTuber guy um, and I'll watch some of his hunts and then I'll I'll try and get out for a hunt myself and I'll I'll give it a crack. And and I am all for people giving it a crack themselves. But there comes a time when you need to meet other people, meet other hunters and learn. And we're just not seeing that. And I, I thought, Matt, for the longest time that it was about sharing spots. I'm like, okay, you know, there's this kind of guarded nature to the hunting community. Is that the factor? Because, again, I'm thinking about solutions. How do we solve this? How, how do we put this puzzle together? You know what? That's not that's not the issue. That There is a much bigger issue that is stopping hunters getting together than just hunting spots. The issue is that we no longer value community that we live in a world where you are a unique snowflake, that you can do whatever you want. It's your responsibility to learn. It's your responsibility to go to university. It's your responsibility to get a job. It's your responsibility this, this, that, 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 that. And you get everything spoon-fed to you that there's no value placed on community. And so I, I, we, in our club, I set up this new thing where it's like host a hunt is one thing and then like host an event as a way to kind of break through that because I'm like, is it just the hunt? How about if I let anyone in the community host an unofficial casual event and say, hey, I'm going to be at this coffee house or this coffee shop or this pub or whatever it is, this train station, whatever it is, at this time, anyone in the, any one of the local hunters can come and connect. You know what? Very few people are doing it. And I'm trying to lead by example. Some of them are, but very few people are. And it's because no one values community. But you know what? The second that people do it, the second that people take the risk, the, people, the second that people put themselves out of their comfort zone, it's like it's like drinking the god's nectar. You kind of awoken, and and you, and you're like, oh wow, how have I missed out on this? This is awesome. These people are great. We're having a ball. This is not scary. This is great. But to get them to have that first sip, man, that's challenging. And that's a broader issue. Like you're talking about changing the way that people see the world. <laughs> if there's anything harder than that, I don't know what there is, but but that's what I'm trying to do. It's only going to get worse. Young young people growing up nowadays, it's all about instant gratification and and there's been a lot of media coverage about, you know, schools putting locked bags now on on phones so they they can't access them because students are, are really those social skills are starting to not be developed and you know, technology is a brilliant thing and I can see the value in what you're doing with technology, but it's also, I guess, the the opposite end of the stick, that it's it's a big part of the problem. And my question when you're talking about those things, two things, I want to know where the future plans are going forward, but what are the age groups of people that are, you said it's very minimal, the amount of people that are actually hosting these sort of, you know, social events. What are the age groups? I'm really curious. Is it the younger sort of 20 to 30? Is it a bit of, a bit of the older guys? Because for me, I would be assuming uh, that it would be more people in that sort of 30 plus bracket that haven't been influenced by that technology and communicator. I mean, let's look at how people meet partners now. I mean, most of it's through a dating app. Uh, I couldn't think of anything worse. I'm so glad I'm, I'm happily married and got a lovely family and, and I know you guys are the same, but Geez, it, like it, the the world is views things very differently than fifteen years ago, and that for me is a big one. How does that impact what's going on with you guys over there at the um, with your club? Yeah, I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head. Is that we we need to be leveraging technology for its benefits. Using it's it's silly not to. 
um, when you have, when you can reach people from your computer, from your phone, if you're being clever through YouTube, through a Twitter account, through an Instagram account, you're silly not to. But the reaching is the first thing. And, and then that should be like the last of the digital, right? Reach them, be able to communicate with them. Then you pull them into community. Then you pull them into relationship. And, um, all of my plans at the moment for the club moving forward, where I'm investing money, where I'm investing resources, time, mental energy, thinking, planning, all those different things is developing those local pockets. Um, and I've got ideas around how that's going to happen. A lot of it is going to be, I'm looking, I'm always on the lookout for those people within our club who clearly get it, like who understand. You see the twinkle in their eye or they're the ones who are hosting the hunts. They're the ones who are hosting the events. They're the ones who are constantly chatting on Facebook and encouraging people. They're the ones on, who are going out of their way to create, they're basically creating community online and in person. And I'm looking for those people and getting to the point where I'm saying, how can I empower you to continue doing that more? Uh, or to take a uh, to take a um, stronger role in that, and and what I don't want <laughs> is to have branches, right? It's like the branch of the ADA here, the branch of the SSSAA here, because that inevitably leads to silos, and silos leads to tribalism, and tribalism leads to war, and war leads to casualties. And so I'm not interested in silos, but what I am interested in is is empowering leaders and community. Uh, and I think that has to happen in local expressions. And so if that means cutting my salary by two-thirds so that we can pay people in every single state to host events and put on barbies and take people out hunting, I, I, like I'm already doing that, but I will do that. I will cut it even more than that. I, I'm not interested in making a whole bunch of money <laughs> not that I, even if it was a hundred percent, I wouldn't be making a whole bunch of money, but that that's, that's, that's part of the plan is to do that. Are you concerned that the wrong people might host those social events? I mean, you know, I love a quote that says a good leader knows the way, shows the way and goes the way. Yeah. But the reverse of that can be the same if you have the wrong people in charge. As you said, you just made some really good points about the tribalism and, you know, segregation of different clubs where they go to essentially water because of personalities and conflicts. Are you worried about that? Because you're not – well, for, look, I don't know 100%, but I'd be also saying you're not vetting people 100% too if they're just putting their hand up say, hey, I want to host this. There is a process and, and there again, this is being smart with digital um, – a lot of the what runs in in terms of the digital sense is is through automation. Um, it's through processes that are set up that then trigger things and events and stuff. Because I'm one man and I can't do everything. And if I was following up on every single query on hunting trips, if I was like taking an email and saying passing it from a person to a guide every single day, that's all that's all I would be doing. Um, and so a lot of it's automated. And with the hosted hunts and hosted events, is you you kind of submit. Uh, you kind of propose something. So you fill out all the form and time and date, you know, and then an email comes to me and I'll review it. And I'll be like, okay, yeah, that, that is a cool idea. And I'll call the person up. If I don't know them, like I will get to know them. Um, if I have any doubts at all, I'll be like, uh, I, I don't know about like, may, maybe you should come along to some events first or whatever. So there is a process. It's not perfect, but there, and there will be ways I'm sure to improve it. And especially as things go wrong, I'm sure we'll figure out nothing's gone wrong as of yet, which is fantastic. But I, I want the community 
I, I have this weird experience of of life and this weird worldview where I'm incredibly optimistic, incredibly, almost overly optimistic, but then I know human beings are trash. <laughs> I know that we're deceptive. I know that we're broken. I know that we're full of faults. And so I kind of have this pessimistic, optimistic view of life in that I, I think the best of people, I assume the best of people, but I'm but I know full well that they can turn on a dime. I know people have agendas. I know everyone does, um, whether they admit it or not. Everyone has agenda. Everyone wants to be seen as powerful. Everyone wants to sit, control things. Um, and so, and so, I'm just I, I I I vet and I and I talk and I build relationship. And it's th- it's through the relationship that I get a sense of whether they're a genuine person, whether they have genuine, authentic um, driving forces behind what they're doing. And if they don't, it doesn't eventuate. But honestly, what I am a big fan of and what I am seeing is that when you give people a chance and when you think the best of them and you create a space and a community where that's the culture, where that's expected, where that where there's room to flourish, 99.9% of people are like, Oh my God, there's breathing room. Oh, we can do this. I can do this. Really? You're going to allow me to do this? And then they do it. And it's amazing because you give them the benefit of the doubt. And we're in this PC society that puts fences around fences and laws around laws because we don't trust anyone because we, because it's all about the individual and we don't value community. And so nothing gets done and everyone is skeptical and everything is so tight. Honestly. I'm happy to have things looser and let it breathe and let it grow and let it flourish. And then when you find a weed, pull the weed out, burn the weed, move on. Don't don't restrict the size of the garden just because you're worried about weeds. That's ridiculous. You'll never enjoy the garden. You'll be in a Footscray apartment with like a tiny little patch of dirt with a single blade of grass in it. I don't want that. That sucks. No one wants that. So why do it? That's another reason why, I mean, I'll, I'll harp on about this forever, but that's another reason why the club isn't an incorporated body. It's not, a, it's not run by volunteers it, because everything gets politicized. People are fighting over grass. It's like, don't worry about the grass. Just enjoy the grass. <laughs> there you go. Rant over. It sounds like a, yeah, well, we'll, we'll take that quote, enjoy the grass. Enjoy. Like yeah, there, there's the sound bite that you can cut out and just put on repeat and get out of context. <laughs> Chris said, enjoy the grass. Uh, Pretty sure he was talking about marijuana. I'm not talking about marijuana. <laughs> yeah, Chris Waters, the forefront for legal marijuana in Australia. Enjoy the grass. <laughs> so you, uh, you mentioned community and definitely agree with that. It's something my life is... Most of my community and my extended friends and family, family, I won't mention that, extended friends are hunting related and it's come from that. I wouldn't say I've gone out of my way to create that, but it's just ended up being like that. And my kids are involved in that community. I took one to the hunting club meeting the other week and she sat on the table, she's three and a half, sat on the table eating an icy pole while I was cutting up a deer, demonstrating that for that community at that club. And I know you've mentioned you've got kids. How are you including them in that community or are they at an age where they're coming out with you? Are they outdoorsy or are they techie or, or how, how do you, how do you see that being a seed that you're planting now and how that flourishes so they can enjoy the grass later in their life? 
We're definitely not talking about marijuana if, if that's the if that's where we're going to go. Um, <laughs> in all in all honesty, um, my wife and I are super intentional about our kids' development, and we we made the move to the tree the tree we made the tree change about five years ago now for exactly that reason because we were working our butts off we were doing the grind we were picking up our kids in the dark from from you know daycare and it was like this is not life we don't have a relationship with our family like kids like this is not family this is not community um and and we're not connected to our neighbors and like it's just so we we made the tree change we moved to a smaller country town um and we bought land and we started doing things like raising pigs. We started doing things like chickens and goats and bees and and all these different things. Um, and with that comes the responsibilities of keeping those animals and especially things like pigs and chickens, which are for food. Uh, we had that conversation really, really early with our kids, our boys, and saying, "Hey, these animals, especially these pigs, uh, they're 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 friends and they're food." And so you can draw the line where you want to with that relationship. And if that line changes, that's fine as well. If, for instance, if you want to name them, name them. If you don't want to name them, don't name them. But this is the reality of what's happening. Um, find your place in it. And uh, like our kids loved it. Like they, like kids just embrace that. When you again, when you give them the freedom and you give them the benefit of the doubt, they fall into those natural rhythms. And so, um, life and death of animals taking the responsibility of, of ending an animal's life cleanly and effectively and being grateful and thankful for that animal uh, just happens naturally. And we're not ashamed to name our animals and then be sitting at the dinner table and like be like, geez, isn't Hershey nice, the name of the pig? What a, what a great pig Hershey was. You know, remember, let's share stories about Hershey and not feel awkward about it, not feel weird about it, but it's like a celebration of the animal. And like, and Eli will say like, like a chicken, um, like Dabby the rooster. He's like, oh, I remember when I pulled Dabby's heart out and it was like, but grabbed my hand up there and yanked the heart out and I held the heart out and I was like, it's the heart of Dabby. And we're like, yeah, wasn't that crazy? Wasn't that, you know, you know, your little hands could fit up in that chicken when I, mine couldn't. And like, you, you normalize it and, and life happens and it, and it flows and flourishes. And I, I've been slowly working my way towards full on hunting with the boys. So we'd start with things like um, ending a chicken's life that was sick, uh, you know, helping it out. And then we'd move on to things like rabbit hunting and, and hare hunting, uh, which is really just walking around a paddock um, or sitting on the edge and, and taking shots and then butchering those those animals. And like the first few times I'd do it and then the kids would do it. And then we'd be like making pelts out of, of those furs. Um, I'm sorry, not making pelts, making like, you know, little things out of those furs. And then we move on to um, – what have we done else? What else have we done? So the boys would then be around when I, I would put a pig down and they'd be involved in the butchering. But as of yet, so my boys are eight and turning 10 in a, in a month or so. They are yet to pull the trigger on a pig. Um, I asked my eldest a couple, probably about six months ago, whether he wanted to do it. And he was like really interested and really excited. And then it came to the day of doing it and, um, he was like, I can't do it. I'm like, that's fine. Don't you don't need to do it. And he's like, but can I can I be there? Can I watch? Can I stand next to you? Can I have can I have the shell from the round? It's like, yeah, of course. And so it's just being intentional about that. And fun that's the case with so much um of growing kids. And I honestly believe that my purpose in life is to raise good, strong boys. Like I have two boys. If I had girls, it'd be boys and girls, but I just have boys. So good, strong kids and I will die happy man tomorrow if, if I do die, knowing that I've given them 
every opportunity to grow. And my kids, my kid, I have the benefit of, you know, working from home. And when my kids say, hey, dad, can we jump on the trampoline? It's like, yes. Like every time. I don't care what I'm doing. I don't care how tired I am. It, the answer is yes. If dad, if dad can, we, can we play this board game? Yes. Dad, can we do this? Yes. And and then when I'm doing things around the property or I'm mending a fence or I'm putting a pig down or I'm doing whatever, it's like, hey, Eli, come out with me. We're doing we're doing this. And don't even give your kids a choice. Just, just grab them, yank them, pull them out of whatever they're doing um, and just be intentional about taking – those opportunities to teach them. And again, kids are sponges. Man, they're so smart. You can explain anything that you want to kids. Like this morning I was reading, my, my son Parker and I read every morning and he's reading this book on the solar system and we're talking about the solar system, we're talking about the universe and we're talking about how, you know, the Big Bang and how everything is is moving away from each other and we're talking about how that affects time and because light travels faster uh, then like like the like time is faster than light. And so in some sense, we kind of way to look at it. But like if you look at a star, by the time that lights hit your eyes, the star's already moved further away. Like you're seeing like an echo of that, like things like that. Kids can kids learn it. Kids can figure it out. Like that's like advanced physics. But you explain it to a kid, you draw a diagram um, and you're like, this is the star's moving away and this is how fast light goes. And the star's moving away. And they can figure it out. So pretty intentional about teaching my kids. Can I jump in there for a second? Um, no, you know you, you're very Dodge. good at like <laughs> you're very good at talking and <laughs> being descriptive. And unfortunately, we don't have the video yet. But for our listeners, I can say while he was talking about all the food, <laughs> hashtag solar eater. He he, Dodge was salivating. You should, oh, mate. It's like there was liquid coming out onto his chin. Sorry, Dodge. <laughs> no. Now, tomorrow there'll be liquid coming out of my eyes because I just, you know, the, the abuse, the teasing, it just gets to me and eats me away. It's all about resilience, mate. We're toughening you That's up. That's what have to put up with, Chris. <laughs> yeah. He's a tough love kind well, of guy. Okay. We're going to go onto the, onto the resilience comment. I, uh, I actually sent Matt a article. I'm in the trophy hunting side of things a lot, Chris, and an article came across me on Facebook. And it was a young girl, 13, had just finished her sheep slam in America. So she'd shot four trophy rams across the country and at the age of 13. So she's the wow. youngest slammer, as they're called, to achieve that. And we're not talking free, but well, we're not talking state forest hunting. We're talking <laughs> high end paid guided hunting. Yep. She may have won one or something at an at a auction, and it does happen. Yep. And Matt and I briefly off air had the comment about. You know how is that building resilience in a child or even a an early on an early hunter if if they're going out and that's their first experience? Yeah, I mean, you, you're saying you're not a trophy hunter; you're, you're a meat hunter. Is is there a hunting goal for you? What's your like? Where do you want to be? Or do you just want to continue, you know, shooting meat animals? Or? My hunting goal is to stay is is to stay excited about hunting. That's my goal. Like, I don't want to I don't want to get to the point where I'm like, ah. Uh, no, nah, I don't want to go hunting. I'll be right. <laughs> That's what I want to avoid. Uh, and because I'm an advocate for growth and learning and development, I will just if I if I find things get too easy, which I doubt, um, but if they do, I'll just find a way to make them harder, or or try a new thing, or like master a new skill, or try to master a new skill. But that all that stuff's a long way away for me. Like I'm I'm not a professional hunter. I'm not a particularly good hunter. <laughs> I'm happy to say that I don't know 
everything. People assume because you create content on YouTube, they just think you're an expert or they think that you think that you're an expert. It is not the case at all. I've never said that. And that's, that's a byproduct of the fact that when tech, you know, when TV first started, all the voices were on TV were like the experts and we've just been conditioned to see that and experience that and think that and that is not the situation with content anymore so if you're listening to this and you're looking at content don't assume that they're an expert don't don't assume all those girls on tiktok that you're watching are experts <laughs> they're not i hate to break to you and the guys what yeah, i know what but um yeah so that's it's a lie <laughs> it's a lie that's <laughs> that's my goal is, is to is to continually stay hungry uh, and continually stay stay interested and there's so much to learn in hunting there is so much you talk to guys like errol mason or paul, paul bogue or paul or or i don't know this there's, there's hundreds of people and women as well like you listen to them for more than five minutes and you're like geez i know nothing how cool that excites me that that that's that's that shows me that I've got a journey ahead. Going back to what you were saying before, though, about that girl, uh, the slammer. So I had a crazy experience. Not crazy. It wasn't crazy. That that sounds like I'm hyping it up. I'm not, I don't want to hype it up. But I had a funny experience a uh, week and a half ago. And I don't. I'm not even sure if I should talk about this, which basically means that I sh- I have to because um, I'm that kind of guy. Uh, and I and I will be making a YouTube video. Like, like, let me let me preface it with this: I will be making a YouTube video that covers this exact conversation with far more forethought <laughs> and unpacking. And if you want to, that's probably the best place to to go pause and see if this video is available. And if it's not, listen here. And if it is, go listen to that version. But it feel, it covers perfectly what we've been talking about. I got an email the other day uh, from a young guy, eighteen years old, and I'm not going to say his name. And I'm not going to say where he's from or anything, but he sent me this email and he said, "Hey, I am blah blah blah. Daniel I'm from, from <laughs> I'm from blah blah blah, and I've just come back from blah 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 doing blah 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 trophy hunt, and I've got another blah 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 hunt coming up in the next couple of months, and this is going to be my thing, basically. Like this is who I'm going to be. I'm going to be this amazing trophy hunter, and." And my mates told me that I should look for sponsors. So are you interested in sponsoring me? And out of the blue. And man, I love the cojones on this kid. Like, look, I'm someone, I, I like, I'm the no BS guy. I'm like, let's get into the weeds. I'm not interested in fluffing around. I'm happy to call things what they are. And so this is, the, this is what I was like as a kid. I just, it's like, if I see an opportunity, if I think I can get something, I'll try and get it. So first off, hats off to the kid for the balls to do that. He probably doesn't even think that he's doing something ballsy, <laughs> which is great, even better, but he is. But how's the hubris? How's the arrogance? How is the entitled attitude? No, I don't, I don't, see, I, I'll disagree with you there that I just think that's the new generation. I don't think it's hubris. I don't think it's, I think it's growing up where we the, the whole system's set up now that you just you achieve. I mean, universities now you, they give away ATAR points. Sorry yeah. for our our listeners who are all over Australia, but in in New South Wales we have an ATAR system which gives you points on a rank. Um, if you're in a local area close to a university, you get an extra ten points. That scares the crap out of me. I'll just yeah. say that right now because you've got a doctor who might 
have once had to get like a 97 to become a doctor, now they can get 87 just because they live in the area. And then if they did a couple of programs at that university, now they can actually get 77. And it's like, hold on, 77? Uh, oh, my God. You're and taking now out my kidney ass- stone the- and you've got a 77? Oh, but, you know, the scarier <laughs> thing is all the assessments at university now are going towards we're not going to do exams and we're not going to do what we call summative learning, which encapsulates everything that you've learnt in the whole semester and you do it at the end. We're going to do it as we go because that's exactly what I want. I want a doctor who's cut me open and goes, <laughs> oh, what do I do next? Let me just check YouTube. Like, what the <laughs> yeah. hell is going on? So I slightly disagree Let me consult my friend. Humorous? He's a 97. I'm a 77 plus 10 plus 10. Yeah, <laughs> I think it's just growing up where you just achieve. Like we, I, I've, my background is playing sports and I am devastated. I don't really even want to put my kids in sports anymore because they all get a trophy. They walk onto the field and you get a trophy. Yeah. We don't count the score anymore because we don't want to upset anyone. Well, you know, guess what? Life is a competition and I want my kids to learn about hunting because I want them to know, hey, guess what? You can go out and you can work really hard and you can do everything right doesn't mean you're going to get a deer. Yeah. It doesn't mean you're going to get whatever you're chasing. Yep. That's the reality. That's life. You need to do that. Whereas I feel a lot of young people, and there are exceptions to the rule, let's make that really clear, but I think it's just the the, the way people are now brought up and they grow up that everything's yes. Like As you said before, you've mentioned a few times the PC side of things, no smacking, no yelling, no. There's, there's daycare centres that are not allowed to say the word no to kids. Yeah. And I just sit there and go, Tragic. Well, what are we setting up for the for the future? And that's where this idea, you know, I want a sponsorship. Scary. I'm going to do this because no one's ever said, hey, that's great that you've got these dreams. But guess what? Not everyone achieves their dreams. The reality is you've got to work really hard and you've got to put in the time and the effort. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. What's hilarious though, what's hilarious is that I, I'm like, I get this email and I'm like, what's he asking? What's he asking for? I'm like, I don't even know. Surely he's not asking for money. Or like, like I mean, if I can help out this kid with some of the influence and the networks that I have, I'll try. Like, but I'm like, I'm sorry, in my back straight away. Like, w- like what do you, what are you actually asking? And then his response was like immediate because these kids are like, you know, hardwired to their phones and like it's like connected to their liver or spleen or something. They're just like constantly wired. And he's like basically like, oh, you could pay for my flights, or you could pay for my trophy, or and he's like, and he's like, and and he, and, but he's he's starting to think like an entrepreneur. He's like, and I'll put your logo on my clothes. Here's a here's a picture of a hunt that I did recently where I did that. But I accidentally covered the logo with my rifle. But next time it'll be all right. You'll see the you'll see the logo. And I was just like, oh man, it's it's laughable how how far from reality, at least a healthy reality, this kid was. And it's 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 so sad that you have to laugh. But the same thing, like. But if that's where you land, if that's where, if that's the takeaway, it's like, oh, let's just laugh about that. Isn't that funny? Then, then what a, what a, a sad world we live in where you can't say no to your kids. And I don't understand because I feel, I feel and this is going to get, this is getting a bit political and I'm not a political guy, but this is just the thought that came into my head and I'll always be honest when I'm ever having a conversation. The, the really smart people, the really well held together people who work really, really hard and have it all together. And or are in positions of influence and leadership, that narrative works perfectly for them because they have control. And so they will encourage this 
whether consciously or subconsciously, this PC environment, because it just means that it's easy. It's easy to manage people. It's easy to, like, when everything's streamed and on demand and delivered to your front door or no one's going to say no to you or or no one's going to, you know, like, tell you off in the workplace or it, then it's just easy because people just shut up and they just, they're just like sheep. Um, and it's appeasing the masses. Yeah. That, that's what it comes down to. And, you know, that's one of the things in credit to you and anybody out there that is putting themselves forward and, you know, that you're going to have your critics and you're going to have people that, you know, whether they like you or they dislike you, whatever it is, that's fine. You, it's not always peachy and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that too. Yeah. Now, am I correct in thinking that your background, obviously you said you're a website designer or that's sort of the background, so you're quite techie? Yeah, so I actually, <laughs> I'm a weird cat. Um, I have a degree in theology and I worked as a pastor in a church uh, for a season and at the same time I was working in schools and counselling. So like a pastor of a church working in schools and at the same time um, working for the Department of Justice in helping um uh, work and rehabilitate offenders, uh, so people who have gone out and done crimes, um, who are doing parole, stuff like that. So I, I, so I have this kind of background, like humanitarian kind of background. But then when that all came to an end, I had to kind of reinvent myself, and that's when I moved into the web design. But I mean, but I am, a, I'm taking in the sense that I am the generation that grew up with, like I was in the the laptop class, the first laptop class in my high school, um, and I've always been interested in computers and technology and so um it's i'm i'm the generation where it was easy to to learn those things and everyone else is going how do you do that control control s for save oh you just press these two buttons it saves the document really like like that came easy so yeah techie i like that you you asked that chris is a techie I know the listeners can't see the chair he's sitting in. And <laughs> it, <laughs> even the headphones he's got on, they look like stormtroopers. Well, that's a gaming chair and a gaming headset. I know. Mate, so that's you my can point. tell you're not a techie. <laughs> clear. No, I'm not. I purchased these headphones this evening <laughs> at 6.45 for a 7.30 session. So I'm organised. No, I'm not a techie and appreciate others that are because control – so what what is it? Control S. Yeah. What does that do? That shuts you. Just find the mute button, mate. <laughs> well, control. No, the best the best one you learned in in high school was Alt Tab, which is which is change tab. So you're playing a video game and you have your document open in Word that you're actually working. You're supposed to be working on, and the teacher comes like Alt Tab, and it, and it just looks like you're working. You're just working on that that, that document. Teacher walks away. Alt Tab. That is in. that is new for me. I'll use that. Thank you. Yeah, Alt Tab. <laughs> so, I guess further to my question about the tech area like I always like to think ahead and try and plan things out and I'm really concerned that you know we've got things getting pitched like the metaverse and I sort of link that to going well will people want to get into hunting especially the younger generation when they if they can immerse themselves in this metaverse where they don't need to leave the house they don't need to travel for four or five hours they don't need to you know brave the weather because they can go into this space and potentially do the same thing very realistically. Hey, Matt. And I'm cons- I'm really concerned. Are the can numbers I challenge, of hunters- Can I challenge you for a second? Yeah, go for blow it. blow your mind? Love it. Let me blow your mind for a second, all right? You are in the metaverse right now. What have we been doing for the last however long, however long this podcast has been listening? I've been staring at a screen, experiencing digital reality. I'm not standing next to you. I'm not sitting next to you. We're not having a cuppa together. We're in the metaverse now. If you're listening to this podcast intentionally and- 
even if you're working and you're just sub, and you're just listening to it subconsciously, you're in the metaverse. You're experiencing the metaverse. The, the metaverse is already here and it's just snuck up on us. And so people spend more time on their computers, on their phones, staring at a screen than they do in reality. We're already in the metaverse. When they document history, they'll be like, oh, those people are saying, when will the metaverse come? But they didn't even know they were in the It's like Neo doesn't even know he's in the matrix. We're in the matrix already. That's the scary thing. Not will they, they are, we are. I agree with that. I mean more like the virtual reality side because with younger people wanting that instant gratification and being able to access it and quick, imagine that, getting home and going, hey, I'm going to go to Canada and shoot a moose and just being able to go into that virtual reality space where it feels, looks real. Will that impact things? Like, as you said before, you want to grow this and have this as a lifestyle and a business and, you know, that's fantastic and that I guess a lot of people have that end goal. That worries me for people that are thinking that way because what happens for our guides that there's a virtual reality guide in the virtual reality world and it's free or it's a subscription of 10 bucks a month. Why do I need to go and pay one of the guides, you know, a couple of thousand dollars to go and hunt this when I can just do it at home, not leave? Oh, got to go. Dinner's on the table. You know what I mean? Well, so I have two two things to that um, that I'll say. The first is- you will always have people who who experience that like there's like a threshold for some people where you just get sick of it. You're like, no, nah, I'm done. I'm getting I need to get out. I need to change. I need like COVID was really highlighted highlighted that, that threshold exists within people. And there are so COVID has birthed so many hunters, people or or hikers or swimmers or joggers or whatever because people are like this is incredibly unhealthy i don't want to especially like i mean like i'm in victoria right and um and i'm in in the country so we only had we had like lockdowns but we didn't even have it as bad as the guys in the cbd in melbourne who had apartments and stuff isolation pushed those people to the limits and then they wanted out so I think there will always be a threshold of people of 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 experience in a digital sense or in an isolated sense that people will naturally, like, because we're natural beings, you can't deny those natural impulses. You can mask them, you can play with them, you can alter them, you can uh, train them and condition them. But we are still natural beings, and we will still migrate and lend ourselves towards natural experiences. So that's that's one thing I think. So it, not, all hope's not lost. The second thing is, I thought for the longest time that everyone should hunt, right? I, I've talked about this a lot jokingly about the supermarket apocalypse. It's like, let's have an apocalypse and let's it's just be supermarkets. And so everyone's forced to grow their own veggies. Everyone's forced to grow their own um, livestock and hunt and do all this different stuff. But I've I've moved on from that position after thinking about this a little bit more deeply. And what I've come to realize is that as a species, we can't sustain everyone hunting. We can't sustain that. It won't work. If if everyone is out there hunting, if if we say every forest is now is now a state forest, everyone can go get a gun, everyone can hunt, the world will be barren within like a couple of months and it would not be fun. And so I'm kind of okay. If humanity wants to go down the, the metaverse path, that's more hunting for me. Go. If you want to do that, go. Like each to their own kind of thing. As long as that our democracy doesn't get so extreme that prohibits those who want to pursue that lifestyle 
can't. That's my only kind of caveat because, I mean, democracy, like laws in dem- democratic countries are made for the masses, right? And so if if all, if all 99% of people are living in the metaverse and all of a sudden some greenies are like, and I hate that word, but people like, we, you know what I mean by extreme political positions when I say that word. I'm not talking about all people who are environmental. I'm talking about specific loud voices. If, if they were like, okay, well, everyone's in the metaverse now, so we don't need to have any hunting, that would break my heart. Then I'd be annoyed. Then I'd be lobbying. Then I'd be yelling very, very loud. And I'd be saying the metaverse is terrible. Get out of the metaverse. But as long as they allow people who want to pursue that lifestyle to pursue that lifestyle, I'm happy. If you if you don't want to shoot a shoot a deer and don't want to eat the food and and not experience that that joy and and that learning, um, and you'd rather live in a metaverse than than do that. I don't think it's good. I don't think it's healthy. If you start up a conversation with me and say what's the best way to live, I'll tell you that it's not the metaverse. But if you want to do that and it doesn't affect me. And doesn't affect the people I love or the access for people who want to get into it, or my kids, <laughs> or my family. I'm putting, I'm putting a lot of oars in here, right? But like, then then do it. It's strange. I don't I don't like that statement, but that's the reality that we live in. Like, I wish I wish that wasn't true. I wish everyone could hunt. I wish everyone did hunt. But if we did, there'd be no hunting. Not everyone was a hunter back in the day. You had your hunters, gatherers, and that's. I agree with you that I don't think everyone. I don't think there's space out there for everyone to do it, and I don't think it's for everyone either. But I think it's definitely our responsibility to to share that with as many people as we can, and then if it sticks with them, that's fine. If it doesn't, that's fine. And I've seen people go through it for a little bit and then drift away and then come back and then drift away. I think that's fine too, but, yeah, I just think I think it's – and this is touching on your hunt share situation. I think it's our responsibility to – Introduce as many people as we can to it. Yeah. Whether it sticks or not, that's fine. But definitely talk about it, share it, spread the word. It's, yeah, whether it sticks, that's up to that person. And that also, we've touched on it briefly, not briefly, quite extensively on a previous podcast about hunters being responsible for the way we communicate what we do mm. and trying to do that in an eloquent way. And it, it is a, you know, it's not a cheery kind of topic sometimes. Yeah, the more people we can share that with, whether they stay in their metaverse or they step out of that and come into our universe, I think it's just important to get it out there and get the word out. It's funny. The I was speaking to Dodge today and I sent him, so I've been trying to gain some access to private property. And I got a letter back today, um, sorry, an email. So I did a bit of a, a mail out for some letters. And I haven't been successful at all with them. I'll, I'll make that very clear and um, probably sent out a good couple of hundred now and have got three replies and the replies have generally been no. But today's one struck me as very interesting. I got an email that basically said, thank you for your letter. I do not highlight, capital, underline, bold, do not give you permission to access my property. And I sort of thought about that and went, hmm, how do I take this? And I actually messaged Dodger a screenshot and said, how do I take this? Is that someone, I don't feel they're an anti-hunter, are they? What, what are your thoughts? But the just the, the tone and the highlight was like, well, because I've done the right thing trying to get access and do it in a respectful manner, but then getting an email saying, oh, I do not, what she thought I was going to 
break down the property fence and get on there. So I did reply to the email and said, thank you, you know, thank you for your response. I appreciate you taking the time to give me. Can you let me know sort of the address because, you know, I don't know who you are personally. And don't worry, I'm an ethical person. I would never access any property without permission. Kind of the point of sending the letter. Yeah. Yeah, sleep well at night that I'm not coming onto your property because why would I send the letter if I was going to do something wrong? But look, I appreciate the time that they took to, to get back to me, but it's it's an interesting thing because I think we're up against it and I think more and more just the way people live and interactions and whether it be the, the tech side, the metaverse being connected to everything and getting away from you know, what was going on 50, 80, 100 years ago with hunting and where our food comes from and all those things is that there's now that sentiment against guns. And I think that's that's also a bigger issue and, you know, not to get all political, but it's it's sort of demonised. And, you know, there was um, Robert Borsak sent, showed an, a video today of him questioning the Premier of New South Wales. And one of the comments for <laughs> like this for a soundbite was, uh, he asked him, "Do you, you know?" His comment was clearly, "I don't want more guns." And I hear that, and I go, "Well, why? Why can't I have more guns? I do. I'm a legal, law-abiding citizen who's probably over the top with safety and everything. And Dodge knows what I like. He calls me a stickler all the time. But just hearing that, I, I feel demonised that I'm, I'm labelled in a community that." It has this negative connotations and view, and it's so wrong. And how do we fix that? What do we do? Like, it, it's it's the big question because I think, and Dodger said it before, and he's I think it's the perfect way to articulate it is we don't necessarily need new hunters. We just need people that aren't anti hunters, and that's a big one. How do we? You know, do you have any thoughts on how we put steps in place to grow that community or that perception? Yeah, I, I have a few. And I have a few a few ideas for you in terms of um, <laughs> property access as well. If you want to improve your chances, I've got some tips for you. Oh, 100%. I'll do anything. I've been trying for years and I've got the uh, the big zero, the big donut. Stop salivating, Dodge. I meant like a zero, not an actual donut. <laughs> Poor Dodge. Let me um, let me address the, the property first and then I'll go back and tell you my ideas um, behind how we grow that space. So I- when I was working as a freelance developer, I started a web design agency, um, and then I ended up buying another website design agency, and it start, and then which had marketing elements so within it. So then I had to learn basically marketing um, to manage this business effectively, and it got to be the largest website design and advertising agency in the town, the city, um, and it was huge. It was great, and I thought that was like the best thing. So, so I, I say all that in that I have a lot of experience in marketing and advertising. The best thing that you can do, and this worked for me time and time and time again, if you want someone's attention and you want them to act, treat you seriously and invest time in a response, handwrite them. I know it sucks because you're going to write hundreds of these. Handwrite these letters to them personally if you can and then staple a tea bag to the top of it. And at the end, it's like two of them, two tea bags, one for you, one for them. Say, so, mate, when you get this, Call me up and we'll have those two cups of teas together and have a conversation and you can tell me about your property or your life or whatever. And it's like put it in a bright pink envelope or something ridiculous or send it in a pizza, like get buy, send a pizza over to the house with the letter in it, right? Whatever you can do to like break through the static, they get it and they're like, holy moly, this guy sent me a pizza. Open it up. 
there's a letter in here. Oh, that cheeky little bugger. Oh, but he hadn't wrote it. Yeah, I'll give him a call back. And they will. Do you need my address? Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, so I, I figured this trick out when- Dodge now wants to buy property. I don't drink tea, but meat lovers, anchovies, no capsicum. Send them a gift out just to a bottle shop or something. I don't know, but like that's probably ethically on the nose. But I learned this lesson when I was 15 when I was applying for jobs and um, I'd send my resume with the pizza. Man, I got the best jobs. Tell you what, I did it. I Yeah, yeah. A, a pizza, a well-positioned pizza opens up a magnitude of doors. <laughs> it's ridiculous. And to be honest, it's not even like- it's not even this kind of tricky, sleazy, black hat marketing tool. What you're doing is you're saying, I value you. You're a human being. I'm going to take the time to write this. It's going to cost me financially. It's going to cost me with my time. And I'm opening up and extending the invitation to relationship. And most reasonable people will respond to that. It might still be a no, but they'll respond. Anyway, take that with a grain of salt, whether you want to do that or not. Matt needs as much help as he can get getting access. But my my main question for that is, what flavour was it? Like, if, if you go in with <laughs> a cold vegetarian cold pizza. Crying out loud. You're not opening with a Supreme. Hold on. Well, mate, at least spearfishing's like a body hunting. We're back it. to food again. The last two episodes we've spent like 45 minutes talking about oh, your stomach It depends on your food. budget too. What You're not hell? getting like the Supreme kind of like custom Pizzas, like I mean, you you got to think about how far you invest. A little goes a long way. If it's a margarita pizza, a small margarita pizza is is sufficient to get the point across. I think. Um. <laughs> I think Dodge potentially could start up his own hunting club in the future, and there's no membership involved. It's <laughs> just a, like a weekly food a item sent to him. Yeah, send him a pizza once a week and or once a month and happy days. Oh, well, no, to you are you onto something. You talk about community, right? You want to talk about community. Food and community for thousands of years have gone together, fingers in glove. You, you go to a, 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 a hunting club meeting. Remember, the best hunting club meetings you've gone to are the ones that had food, good food. They're the best mm-hmm. ones. That's we're human beings. Again, mm-hmm. we're not di- we're not divorced from reality. We're physical things, and we will have fun when we're doing things like eating. And so, you want to run a good, productive hunting club meeting? Get pizza, people of whatever it is, Uber Eats, whatever your poison is. People will get. People will pay attention. You want to get something across the line in a vote? Order pizza and give the biggest slices to the people who you want their votes. Going back to what you said before, in all in all seriousness, um, how, how do we? Um, I think there's a place. I'll I'll be careful how I say this because it's a serious. I'm talking about hunting. I'm not going to talk about guns because I'm not. For me, a gun is a tool. It's a utility. It's it's used for a purpose. And and I have friends who are shooters, um, competition shooters who love shooting, who love ballistics, who love the science, who love the feel of guns, who love the hobby, who love collecting, all of the great things about guns. They all love that. I'm not interested in that stuff. I don't think it's bad. I think it's awesome, but I'm just not interested in it. So for me, I'll um, think about a gun enough that I can use it effectively. And that's as far as I go with my guns. Um, So I'm not a huge lobbyist for gun rights. Uh, I'm actually glad that it's hard to get a gun. I think as a country, we're a lot safer, that it's um, difficult. It's, it shouldn't be prohibitive or impossible, but I think it makes sense that we weed out a whole bunch of people 
who probably shouldn't have guns. Um, or if you're just wanting to gun for a nefarious purpose, it should take time so you can cool off and think about it. And all of the, I think there's a lot of good things about guns in this country. So what I'm going to say specifically relates to hunting and how we're viewed in society and the politics concerning hunting and how we can make it better in Australia. That's that's kind of my angle. Two things. I think there's a responsibility on every single hunter to represent hunting and well, hunting ethics, hunting morality, strong communities, all that kind of thing. The, the terrible thing is that's incredibly difficult to do, to kind of rouse the masses and for everyone to do the right thing. And I think for the most part, most hunters do do the right thing, but they're either they're, they're not vocal about it, so they don't go out of their way to to kind of communicate that. And like you said before, there's always room and growth for becoming a better communicator as a hunter because the more communicators we have, communicating effectively, authentically, openly, intellectually, the better. The, the better we're perceived and they just don't and people aren't investing in community so our, our, so we're, we're shrinking as a as a population which is sad so we're losing influence just just because of the lack of manpower so that's an issue but we do all still have that responsibility and we should all take that very seriously I, like i do things for instance like i i was speaking on, on my podcast about this um last night to um, Jason from um, liquid antler that i regularly go into um, supermarkets in full camo just startup conversations, like with the teller, like when I'm going through the cashier and they're like, how are you? And I'm like, I'm good. How are you? And they're like, I'm good. And then my immediate response is, are you really good? Like, are you sure you're good? And they're like, oh, you know what? Yeah, I am. I'm like, why are you good? And they're like, because I've got a, I've got a kid. So I've got family. And like, you just dig in. And then they're like, and you again, it's like the pizza, right? Open the door to relationship. And they're like, you a hunter? And you're like, yeah, I am. What do you hunt? I hunt deer. We have deer in Australia. We have deer like a kilometer that way. What? Yeah. And then you just talk, 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 and people ask questions. How are you with whole? Like, do you shoot them? Like, do you gut? Do you do you eat them? Like, again, people are curious, and we need to be careful that we're not assuming that the bulk of the populace is anti-hunting because they're not. Um, people think that in Australia, it's not true. I think that there are a few voices and a few groups that are very vocal, very, very loud, and unfortunately they're very good communicators. And so it seems like that everyone's anti-hunting. It's not true. The bulk of people are curious and just don't know, and so it's an opportunity to teach and train. So that's one. The other thing is that I, um, and I'm careful that, that I say this and how I say this, but I think that there is an important position and opportunity for people of influence or, or good communicators or public figures who are hunters to communicate on behalf of the community, the community and to advocate and to use those skills, those natural giftings that they have to gain ground. Um, because when you take the masses and the responsibility for the masses of, of hunters to, to communicate, all it takes is one bad seed and then it's spoiled, it's tarnished, and that happens a lot, unfortunately, because, again, the media sensationalizes and we all love a juicy story, and so, unfortunately, it paints us with a bad stroke. But but one hunter, a personality, uh, a public figure, is is only accountable to themselves. And so, if they stuff up, sure, you've stuffed up, you've ruined it. But if you don't stuff up, then you can't be brushed with the same stroke as everyone else. You, you represent a form, a picture of that. 
And so you can only be measured up against yourself. And if you stay true and you stay ethical and you stay honest and you put relationships ahead of of gain or influence or control, then they can have a very, very, very powerful voice. Look at example in America, what um, Steve Rinala is doing with Meat Eater. Man, is he kick some goals for hunting in America. Uh, and I'm not saying he's good or bad. And I'm not saying I like him or I don't. Well, I'll say I actually I do like him, but I don't. I haven't researched him and his personal life and stuff. He might have some skeletons. I don't know. If he does, that's interesting. If he doesn't, though, man, is he doing a good job? That's one man, and I think there's a place for that. I, I, I do. I think it's a heavy burden for those people who are choosing to take up that mantle. But um, I think there's a place for it. Do you, the lady behind the counter you were mentioning? at Coles when you walk in in your camo. And that sort of circling back to the comment I made previously, but we don't need more pro hunters. We just need less, you know, people that are okay with hunting and and people like that and striking up that conversation. Do you – are you feeding people in the community? Like Kyle spoke about it before, feeding his his staff members at work with, with deer that they shot. And are you – do you cook much? Do you introduce game food to – because we found that that's, that's like a super early key to introducing people to the benefit that we have as hunters. And, and I, like, I, fencing's my normal job. It's not, it's very common for me to talk about hunting to my clients. It's something that I talk about pretty regularly. And one of the things that I have, you know, I've given them meat before. I've, one particular client asked for a heart from a deer because he grew up eating it and he hasn't had it for years, fresh deer heart. So from the last hunt, McMatheson, we saved some heart and I'm going to actually, this later this week, I'm catching up with that client and I will take that with him. So I think it's, I think that's an easy step forward in introducing people into it. Is that something you've done much of? Or? Can I just jump in before you do that? Isn't it now being made illegal yes. to share meat in Victoria? So, um, so no, you I, haven't. I believe, yeah. So I, um, it's, it's so sad. This is an example of what I was talking about before when when democracy works against us um, and not with us, and how it becomes very difficult when the when the herd moves one way, and you see a clear path in the opposite direction that's healthy and good to a better pasture, but the herd's moving because food. And relationships and community, like we said before, go hand in hand. And so food, wild game food, is the perfect gateway to hunting. It is. Um, again, Steve Ranella, what's his name? It's Meat Eater, right? It's like, and in all of his, not all of his, but most of his episodes, it's like, we're hunting, now we're cooking, now we're feeding. It's like connecting all everything together into community and to relationship. Um, and so I feed my family religiously with game food, religiously. And and when uh, I ever get asked by by friends as to whether they should be eating game meat, it's like 100% yes, 100% you should. With the caveat that the first time you have it, you will probably be uncomfortable because you're not used to the taste. And that's not – it's. And try not to think of it that you don't like it. It's not that you don't like it. It's that you don't understand it. It's that you haven't experienced before. It's unusual because you've been fed pork and chicken and beef and lamb your whole life. And this is very different. And so the challenge is 
again, same as learning and positioning yourselves in different situations with different kind of hunters and different hunting experiences, find the kernels of of truth and and gold. Like mine the gold out of that. And it's there. It's there in everything. So find out what makes uh, game meat complex and beautiful and interesting. Uh, it's not gamey. That's a that that's taking a designation of a of a species, a, a political position on an animal, and applying it to a food. It's not gamey. It's refined. It's it's gone through a process. It's interesting. It's unique. Find a word for it that describes the taste. Don't put a label on it that's politicized. It's it's it, even game animal. That oh man, I can go into that for ages, but I won't. But um, so yeah, hundred percent. I I feed my family. Um, my, my kids love their favorite is is venison schnitzel, um, with mashed potato. Oh, I'm sorry, Dodge mashed potato and gravy and and um, oh, it's it, I mean it's it's glorious. I, I love it. I, I love um. Yeah, hunting is a, has been a big gateway into cooking for me as well because my wife's an amazing cook um, and I was never taught. And so as I've been stepping back from structured work into more of a free flow of passions and work or colliding, I've had much more time and more responsibility within the household to do things like cooking. And so cooking game meat, um, as terrible as that word is, has, um, has been a really exciting venture for me to get into. How would you explain the flavour? Then, if if you don't want to use the word game, meat. refined, refined is I like refined bec- for a few reasons because, um, especially for deer, uh, they're they're moving from like a fallow, for instance, uh, or or even or any deer that they're, they're using those legs, they're refining those muscles constantly, they're stitching them together, they're weaving them, they're building a really dense meat profile, uh, up and down spurs through systems, and so the meat is being refined. Continually, constantly, and so there's that element that kind of reflects the physical um, structure of the meat. But then also in terms of the process that you need to go through to appreciate it is you need to refine your taste. So you need to develop your palate. No one, no one drinks their first beer and's like, "Geez, that was just, whew, that was incredible." They're like, "Oh, that was bitter. Oh, what? Oh, that was. Oh, or like their first coffee, like which." You give a kid like red wine, they're like, like no, because they they haven't refined their palate. They haven't learned to appreciate what makes it interesting, unique, and complex. And so, I like the word refined to talk about it um, as a as a um, of meat. Plus, it also puts the guilt trip on you that if you don't think it's refined, then you're not refined, and people don't like being put in a box. <laughs> it's so disappointing to hear that they're banning the sharing of gay meat because I just I think it's such a missed opportunity and. You know, I'm very big on conservation, sustainability and things like that. And for me, I still think it's nuts that we just throw away so much meat and produce and things like that when there's families out there that can't afford it and people that are homeless that would die to be eating good food and we just waste it. And it's such a disappointing thing and I, I really believe it's such a step in the wrong direction um, down there Like, and, you know, but hey, the powers that be made the decision. It's, it's and- what you said before. It's fences around fences. We don't need fences around fences. I got talking about wasting meat. I got sent a photo today, and I'll ask him if it's okay to put up on the socials or not. But it's a friend from church, and he works on a farm. It's quite remote. He sent me a photo 
I could nearly turn it around and show you on the camera. It's the front end. It's the bucket on a front end loader with about fifteen deer in it. Yeah, and they had a commercial shooter I come through I think I know who night. your friend is because I think he sent me the same photo. Well, maybe I. Hope. Is that the same photo? No, it's a different it one. Okay. Um, well, we have similar friends, so we'll just say that. But <laughs> and he he's not a hunter. He's not a shooter. And he sent it to me and I instantly sent back an audio message along the lines of don't send me photos like that without an address because yeah. I'm coming to pick them up. And he didn't have reception to get. But yeah, well, no, back to not <laughs> back wasting. To food. Yeah, correct. And Value. I, it was so frustrating to see that prime fallow in this time of year covered in fat. It's like uh, just – anyway, I spoke to him this afternoon about it and he said, oh, it was a commercial shooter came through and his job was to kill them. Mm-hmm. He took – two legs and a, and a few back straps and that was it. And this guy was like not up, not crying or whatnot but definitely upset in his voice that these animals were wasted and he's not a hunter. So he said that, you know, there's a possibility that next time I could shoot them. I said, no, look, I'm not interested in shooting them. I don't want to take away from his job but definitely let me know when he's coming and yeah. I'll come out with him, stay out of his way and take them home or at least come back the next morning and grab them. There's no issue with that. I just, I don't understand. Even, like, feed them to the dogs. Like, do something yeah. with it. Like, what? Like, I've, again, like, because I'm connected with all of these guides now and I'm meeting all these hunters, I know a lot of professional shooters. And one professional shooter who's super high profile um, sends me pictures of, like, utes with the back full, like, above the cab of deer. And for him, it, it's like, pride it's like look what i did and i'm like mm. i feel sick i'm like that doesn't impress me that makes me sad like and and that was just you like let's you want to do a cull i mean it's tricky because it's his livelihood like i get and i totally get what you're saying dodge that you, you don't want to impede on that and it's tricky but like i can i can give you a list of probably 200 greenhorns who we could take out and if we did it carefully and properly, would have the time of their life, life-changing experiences, and and they would eat every scrap of that deer, the, the, the hair if they could, like, and we'd accomplish the same end um, but with a better result. Uh, yeah. Breaks my heart. Matt's looking to take you up on that offer. I, I want to get one myself. Like, I was reflecting on it as I do because I have quite a long drive to drop my kid off to daycare. And I always reflect in the car. It's just my silent time and I was really thinking about it. I don't really mind the fact that I haven't got a deer. It doesn't bother me. I know I get, you know, shots at me. Um, Dodge likes to rub the salt in the wound and whatnot all the time, which is great. It does not bother me at all. It's the challenge. I don't want – I don't care if it takes me another 10 years. It doesn't bother me in the slightest. I – it's more the sense of accomplishment. I love the fact that, yeah, the meat would be fantastic, but I don't necessarily- You don't want a shortcut. That's not the be-all and end-all as well. It's the accomplishment of, yeah, exactly. I, I Whilst I'm trying to access private property and, and whatnot, I see some value in that from safety point of view and, and different elements to it, not just um, something else because I do a lot of my hunting solo and, you know, you, you I- I think differently mm. a lot now having kids and a family. When I was a young fella, like, you know, to get head back to spearfishing just as for the, for the moment, I was diving and spearfishing with great whites feeding on a whale 150 metres away. So, like, 
I, I look back and go, geez, you know, that really, I did some really dumb things. But now that I've got a family and now that I've got kids, I start to think about these different things and you hear some some stories and things out there that happen um, in state forests, in public land, and it's always in the yeah. back of my mind as well that accidents do happen. So I sort of wanting to go more the private property route is to more just that, hey, it'd be great if I was the only one on there legally. You know, you can't stop people doing illegal things, but there's less chance of accidents happening and things like that. So I'm heading more that way as opposed to oh, I want private property and make you know it easier what, Matt, to though, get a deal. I, I, I commend you, and I, and, I, and I don't say that lightly, I, I really do, for the honesty and the authenticity to, as a hunter, to say that you haven't got a deer, that is, that is an incredibly vulnerable position to be in as, as a hunter and even I would say as far as, as, as a man, right, because we're programmed and hardwired to be this gatherer, you know, pro, like accomplished driven thing. It's hardwired into help to who we are. Um, and it is a cancer on hunting to like you see someone put up a picture of a like a, I don't know, year and a half doe on, on, on their, and that's like their first deer and they're over the moon about it and they're incredibly excited and they put it up on social media and they get ripped to shreds. Like, oh, good oh, good job with that key ring or why'd you shoot that or or like where's it, where's its antlers and all that. It's like, dude, like this isn't like as if this isn't hard enough. Like how is this helpful? Like this is a this is an accomplishment that we should be celebrating. This we should be championing. And and why make a rod for all the other people's backs who were putting in the time, putting in the effort, making decisions to make it harder for themselves because they want it to be safer? Like there's a smart decision, right? Uh, why why are we like I just it really irritates me. So for you to come out and say that and to say that publicly in a recorded format is is incredibly encouraging to me personally um, and, uh, yeah, inspiring, I'd say. Thank you. Thank you for saying it. Oh, thank you. But, no, look, for me it's just I, I don't I don't see it as a negative thing. I, it's, again, it's, everyone has their journey and I don't want to shortcut anything. I, nothing in my life has ever been given to me on a silver platter. I've had to work for absolutely everything. But it just makes it so much more sweeter when you achieve it. And I've got that drive. So I don't care that the listeners might be out there and going, oh, he hasn't shot a deer. What the hell does he know? Uh, hey, that's fine. If you don't, you know, if you feel that way, that's that's great. Like I'm not, I've never professed to be an expert in the field. But, it, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to get in doing this podcast is to learn. I know Dodge is on the same thing and it's funny that you were talking about spearfishing. We've had a conversation about doing things that are out of his comfort zone because he's been in hunting for so long and he's learnt so many things. He wants to learn new things as well and I think it's important that mm. I, I, I just don't yeah. want to get stale ever and th- this is why I love hunting because I don't think you will ever, th- I don't think anyone out there is the expert. You will always learn something. I don't care if you've been hunting for 60 years, you will learn something new all the time. And that's the beauty of it. And it's just so natural. I think it's important for our listeners to be reminded that that it isn't easy. I mean, I joke about it and I give you crap about it. You know, I, I, I just, 
some of us are hunters and some of us are gatherers. And one day you work out you might just be a gatherer, and that's okay. But you gather like, from I don't the fridge, want to... Dodge. You're a fridge gatherer. <laughs> that's right. Yes, I am a gatherer of of friends and shots fired. Quit it. Just because I give you one backing, you given me heap for all night. But I don't know. I turned on you. Then I've been supporting you all night, and I was just like, "Nah, that's it." He put it, he put a shot back. Screw him. <laughs> How dare I fire back? Sorry. Wow. So no, I, I, I appreciate I, your honesty, and uh, yeah, it's important to remind our our listeners that although I may now currently be able to shoot deer willy nilly whenever I want, it wasn't always like that. You know, it was hard. It was difficult. It will be for a long time. It's only now, like, let's say 15 or so years into my shooting career that I have one stable private property that I can hunt myself. Prior to that, it was, you know, plus ones or the occasional invite and things like that. So it's a long journey and especially with State Forest being the, the first point of entry for a lot of New South Wales hunters especially or public land in Victoria. You know, you're going to walk along those ridge lines for a lot of years and probably not shoot something. So just just keep at it. Don't give up. You know, start a podcast and try and get some access by sending pizzas, and you might get one eventually. And we'll get there. We'll get there. And I, I, hasn't worked yet. <laughs> I do want to be there with you for it, Matt. Yeah, and don't let's not get confused that the value of a hunter is directly correlated with how with many the amount shot. of kills that they've got. Agreed. It is, that is not the value of a hunter, let alone the value of a person. Like a person's value, the way that you should treat a person, the way that you should engage a person, person has nothing to do with how many deer they've hunted, whether they slip up and say doe instead of hind or, or whether they- Snag instead of were, were, Yeah, exactly. Or whether they were walking you know, with the wind at their back and they didn't realise they, or they made a stupid decision or they don't know like- they didn't, you know, they don't know how a, a bolt works or, or an action or, or the, or the, you know, the tension on a trigger. That is not, that should not change the way that you engage with a person or a hunter um, at all. It's, I, I personally believe that people's value is absolute. It's like we are all exa- on exactly the same playing field at the exactly the same level. We all have immense value. The, the highest value you can ascribe should be ascribed to people in my mind, I believe. And we all have it to an equal level, regardless of whether you act like an idiot or a jerk or you're a saint. I believe that you should always give people the benefit of the doubt. And hunters especially need to, to, to think about this and not fall into the petty trap of my buck is bigger than your buck. I don't give a beep, beep, beep about your buck. I, I give a beep, 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 beep about you as a person and we should all feel that way. And, and like Dodge said, uh, when you first get that deer, that should be celebrated by the people around you and by yourself and by, and by your community. And it will be awesome and it'll be amazing and it'll be validating. Um, Matt's got a button there on the pod, on the uh, podcast thing that he can press when he does get a, his first deer. Can you, can you, can you press it? His technical side. The, the cheering and the That's applause. All right. But I want to be there for Matt and I want to take him out to my block and get him one. But in listening to him, I don't think he'll count that. Like I, I know he'd be appreciative and whatnot, but unless it's on, I really want it to be on his own block that he gets his private access to that, he, you know, it's, I just don't think it'll, it'll be as valuable to him as, as if he gets it himself. I actually want to. I, I, the more I've been thinking about it as I drive, I, I, I do want to 
have the first on a st- in a state forest. Yeah. I, I've been, I don't know, like it's just the more, the more people we talk to, the more exposure to different mindsets and things like that, the more I'm just getting more desire to get that deer in a state forest um, just because I, just to challenge myself. So there's, yeah, it's very conflicting at the moment because I'm, I'm wanting private access, but then I really, I don't think I want the first deer to be in private access too. So it's, yeah, it's a really interesting one. I'm, I'm drawn to the state forest personally. Like that for me, that's where the adventure is. That's where the, that's where the blood, sweat and tears comes in. And I got my first deer in a state forest uh, with my brother um, under his, like he, he guided me onto the animal. He set it all up. Um, it was perfect. And yeah, it was yeah, perfect is the, is the only word to describe it. Like it was probably one of the most, definitely one of the most profound experiences of and, sh- and formative experiences of my life. And if I'd, if I'd gone to Water Valley mm. and shot a big buck or stag and paid a whole bunch of money to do that, it would have been special, but it would not have been the same. I can tell you that. Um, and I, and look, I wouldn't have. I wouldn't regret it. I wouldn't go back and be like, oh, geez, I wish I'd gone to say, I mean, I'm not someone who lives in regrets, but I'm glad that I didn't do it that way. I'm, I think that's probably a heading, perfect probably, place. Sorry. I'm probably heading towards wrapping up, which is where Matt was heading there, but I'm definitely jealous of not your relationship with your brother. I, I have a brother and he's not outdoorsy. I mean, he's a builder, so he works outdoors. No interest in hunting or anything like that. I'm the only one in my family that does it. My parents don't. Dad's not interested. Anyone that can have that connection, like the only thing that I'm ever going to do with my brother is go to the pub and get drunk because that's it's one of his favourite pastimes. He's very good at it, very skilled at it, and it's not something I'm interested in doing. But we've, we'll have a guest coming up soon, and he's you know just been overseas with his two brothers on an international hunt, but they they hunt together all the time, family farm, things like that. It's just... Yeah, I'm personally jealous of of that, and I can see why that. Even if I did take my brother out now and shot a deer, or, or shot anything, or even just went out and didn't shoot anything, I can see why that means so much to you, Chris. It's not something I I probably felt earlier in life, but as I grow older and I have children, and I can see their relationships growing as siblings, just the power in in hunting with your friends is one thing, but hunting with your family is just something beyond that. That's next level, and yeah. And I'm, I'm lucky in that um, when I say he's my brother, he is not my blood brother. He he married into the family, like he married my sister. Um, but I, 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 whenever I refer to him, and I refer to him a lot in in content, in videos, on podcasts. I don't think there's been a podcast I've been on where I haven't talked about him. But I always call him my brother because that's what he is to me. And I inherited, not inherited, that's the wrong way, <laughs> from my sister. I inherited from my sister an older brother. A mentor, um, and and I was lucky, and it was a gift, and um, it's something that I don't squander. And he like talk about um, community, and something we haven't spoken about tonight, and we obviously don't have time to talk about it. But his accountability, whatever he says, I I do, like I trust him that much. I'm like you, he can say Chris, and he will say Chris that video you did. Did you realize X, Y, and Z, mate? That was dumb. And, I, and he won't even say it like that because he's a super gentle guy. He'll be like, he will be like, Chris, are you sure about that? And I'll be like, oh, what, what, what did, I, what did I do? 
oh, mate, this, this, that, and that. You should really think about that in the future because he cares about me. Man, to have someone who will do that for you consistently because they care about you and not worry about what you'll say, man, that's a gift. Um, so it's a gift on so many different levels. I, I consider myself very blessed to have him um, and I'm excited to get back out with him actually. It's been too long. Well, I think that's a really good place to wrap it up, guys. Uh, I just wanted to say thank you for giving up your time and coming on. So Chris Waters, a.k.a. the Australian Huntsman, thanks very much for coming on the podcast and, mate, we wish you all the best in the future. Thanks, guys. Thanks for being here, Chris. And if people want to find out more about your club or your channel, where, where do they go to, to do that? So you can check out australianhunters.com.au if you're interested in being involved or learning more about the club. If you're interested in a guided hunt, going out on a guided hunt, you can check out huntingtrips.com.au. And uh, if you're a member of the club, you'll actually get a discount on on most of the hunts on there as well. And then uh, if you're interested in learning more about hunting or watching someone learn more about hunting and kind of feel their way through hunting adventures, check out the Australian Huntsman on YouTube and have a good laugh at me making (laughs) dumb decisions and learning and and trying to figure out what this whole hunting thing in Australia is about. Cool. Thanks for that, Chris. Thanks very much. We appreciate it. And uh, get over there, guys, and have a look. And I'm sure you'll learn something. And, yeah. Thank you and all the best to our listeners and we'll catch you next time. See you guys. Bye for now. If you have a question for the team, shoot us an email. Our email address is theendlesspursuitpodcast at gmail.com. Alternatively, jump on our social media, Facebook and Twitter. You can find us by using the at hunting journeys and Instagram. Find us on endless underscore pursuit underscore podcast. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you next time.